0: We never went anywhere, and it was it was not a factor in life at all. But then, when I became a believer and actually started taking it seriously, they they were alarmed, and you know, you know, antagonistic. I mean, I I, I had. Uh you know, I had situations where we in high school we had a class, the the Bible is literature. Well, guess who wasn't allowed to take their Bible to school? I mean, everybody else is probably probably not even believers. They've all got Bibles, and there I am. You know, I'm not allowed to take it. You know, I'm not allowed to go to this or that church or this or that, you know, youth group activity. And I just believe that, you know, if I do the right thing, if I, if I honor my parents, then, you know that that will matter at some point and and it did you know not that right now i mean they're believers now but it took 20 25 years for god essentially to crush them you know to to love them into submission <laughs> and they they had they admitted i mean they have admitted to me you know they said things like hey you know we used to do things you know, to you and say things in front of you just to see what you would do. You know, I I walked into an argument between my parents one day. They were wondering if I was gay because I didn't go out and, you know, you know, fool around in the car with girls. And I mean, just my mom yelled at me one time for not doing drugs like the normal kids. Oh, my gosh. yeah, it's just just this crazy stuff. I, I knew it then. I mean, I knew enough as as a believer to know that they're doing that because they're they're under conviction or they they want to see it if it's authentic or it, it was their way of of trying to probe that. But you know, it, it got us into some really interesting situations. So. You know that the only thing I was really good at—I mean, I played a lot of sports—but the only thing I was really, really good at was academics. And so, eventually, I—I I, uh, I could fill your hour with stupid stuff that I've done or thought. Because I'll just give you this one instance: It wasn't until I was a senior in high school that I learned that pastors got paid. <laughs> this
1: this oh, is that's how awesome. I like,
0: this is like how out of touch I was with the, you know, with the religious world. And when I found that out, I thought, what? Like people will pay you to study the Bible and talk about it? Like really? And that was just – I was always interested in anything old and weird. But, and, and the Bible has lots of both of those things. But when I found that out, it's like, man, this is what I want to do. And, and I loved scripture. I loved ancient languages. I, I was just good at that. That's what I wanted to do. And so I eventually wound up picking Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages because I... Really came to believe that that was where there were most the most problems of interpretation the, the things that were just sort of hardest you know to figure out and understand in scripture so that's literally how I I mean I could have gone into any of the areas but I thought this is where the most weird stuff is the the the, the biggest questions and this is where I'm I'm just going to land you know the the rest I guess is sort of history but again it just it was a very long difficult. A process because I didn't have any help. I didn't have any guidance. Here, here's another, again, I could fill the hour with stupid stuff. I'm taking my SATs. This will give you a clue as to how clueless I was. I'm taking my SATs in high school. My, my parents had not gone to college. I mean, I, I'm i just isolated in all sorts of ways. So at the end of the SAT. They, they want you to put a number in to have your score sent where, well, nobody told me that. Like, I don't have a number for this. What do I do? Because I wasn't allowed to hand it in unless I put a number in there, one of these school codes. And so I put in the University of Kentucky. Why, you <laughs> ask? Because I went to high school with Sam Bowie. And I thought, well, if I go to Kentucky, at least I'll know someone. That, that was the extent of my thought process. You know, the, my whole life has sort of been like that, where it just sort of, happened. And to be honest with you, I mean, most of the major decisions I've made have really been because God has put me in a situation where I, I couldn't mess it up, you know, I mean, essentially <laughs> taking taking alternatives away. And it's like, well, here you go, you know, jump in there and, and, you know, we'll see what happens. And so there's just been a lot like that. And, you know, I've, I've never sort of lost the fascination with scripture. And, and again, because of, I, I think because of, of who I was, I, I really I mean I didn't I didn't know anything you know it, my first exposure to the gospel was when I was nine it was through a friend who lived next door to my grandma I was at my grandma's a lot because my parents got divorced and so this the single mom four kids two of them had cystic fibrosis I don't know I, I think about it today it's like how did they survive Cause she didn't have an income you know but but I'd go over there and they would have you know like a family Bible time and I my friend who was nine was like you know he, he just amazed me at his Bible knowledge you know and no this is not an exaggeration here's what I knew I had heard of Jesus, I had heard of Noah, and I had heard of Adam and Eve. I was tapped at that point, you know, but that that was, you know, my beginning and then it was, you know, it was through the same family when I when I Finally was in high school that I, I came to the Lord, but man, my whole life has just been like that kind of thing, so i 'd like to to say, man I was really wise here. I was really smart. boy, that was an excellent decision okay i, I can 't claim credit for basically anything
2: <laughs>
1: you know that 's just the way it is I like that one thing that you talked about was obviously going into the study of ancient language in the history of the bible i 've always been fascinated with that because I remember getting saved at an early age, and I say early in my 20s, but I remember thinking, like, there's got to be so much more that we're missing. Now, I don't have, I don't know anything about Hebrew, but I just remember thinking that, sitting in church, thinking out of all the people, how many times it's been rewritten different languages. Again, like you said, the person who wrote it, understanding the culture, like, there's so much behind it that we don't get. Mm -hmm. So at that, at some point, What was like one of the first things, I'm just curious for you, that was like an aha, like, oh my gosh, we've been, we've heard this or been taught this for years, but this is really what it's saying. And I'm guessing you've had a lot of those, but do you remember like the first one or two? Yeah, boy, that, that's, that is a, that's a really good question.
0: And it's difficult because there are a bunch of these, wow. Wow. Something early, I think you know. Just will be a bit of a generalization, but I, I remember sitting in my first Bible class and just realizing and, and and hearing that there were things there were things to think about in the sort of core fundamental ideas uh, of the faith. Like, okay, Jesus is God. Okay, Jesus is God and man. Well, I remember you know learning that. That was that was controversial. You know, like and, and how does that work? Where does the soul come from? You know, learning like here are the possibilities. And and then not only that, but but actually being taken into scripture, different passages and learning, you know, essentially how to think through a passage and, and what, what the possibilities are. I mean, later on I can give you give you the specific sort of watershed moment for me in graduate school. And that was I relate this in the opening chapter of Unseen Realm. I was, you know, I had taught biblical studies for five years. I had two master's degrees. I'm in a doctoral program in Hebrew studies. In other words, I'm not a newbie, okay? And, and I'm sitting there in church killing some time before the service, and I had a friend who was also in the Hebrew department there with me, and I, I don't remember what we talked about, but I will never forget the way the conversation ended. It, we, he handed me his, his Hebrew Bible, and he said, you need to read Psalm 82, in Hebrew, and and so I did, and it it it's not difficult. The first verse is the lightning bolt. It says, "Elohim itzav ba'adat el." God, Elohim, very familiar term for God, stands in the divine council, and then the next line is. The care of Elohim Yishpot, in the midst of the gods, Elohim there a second time, but it has to be plural because it's in the midst of, can't be in the midst of one, in the midst of the gods, he passes judgment. And these plural Elohim, these gods are called sons of the Most High in verse six. And I'm looking at that and I thought, how have I never seen that before? That sounds like a pantheon. And it, it was like, I don't remember any of the sermon, you know, it was like, yeah. I, I could not let go of that. It was so alarming And fortunately, providentially, I had a second thought as as I was looking at this. I thought, I bet Jesus knew this passage. I bet Paul knew it. I bet the disciples knew it. There must be a way to understand this and still have a Trinity, still have the uniqueness of the God of Israel. You know, the God of the Bible. There must be a way that this makes sense. And again I had a lot of Bible under my belt and I had never seen that I went off and I looked at evangelical sources there was a massive new book about the doctrine of God and a very famous professor at a famous evangelical school he didn't even have Psalm 82 in his index It was a 600 page book on the doctrine of God didn't even have it in his index I'd go to commentaries and they'd say things like oh the Elohim here they're just people right right so when we go over to Psalm 89 and you have the same setting a divine council a divine assembly with the sons of God it says they're in the sky in the heavens hey the last time i read my bible there isn't a bunch of jewish guys running or you know floating around in the sky <laughs> ruling anything yeah. you know it, it just it just didn't make sense and i, and I, I discerned really quickly that okay this is something that is systematically avoided, and and it it became my obsession. It, it became the topic of my dissertation. It just it it just took me down all sorts of roads, and now that I'm on the other side, I, I can I can actually say, well, that there is there is a very clear, coherent you know answer to this. You know, Elohim just it creeps us out because we we see. The letters G, O, and D, and our brain, because we're, we're Westerners and we're modern, and you know, we have all these church traditions behind us, our brain just assigns a specific set of unique attributes to the letters G, O, and D. That's why you don't put an S on it. It creeps us out. Well, the biblical writer didn't think that way about the term Elohim. How do we know that, Mike? Because we have a PhD, and so we just bow to your knowledge. No, we know that because of how Elohim is used by the biblical writers. There's there's six different things called Elohim in the Hebrew Bible. It's not about attributes. It's ju- it's just a, a word that says it's a disembodied spiritual being. That's all. It's a spirit. It's a spirit being. Well, there's lots of those, but there's only one God of Israel. There's only one Yahweh. And, and and I had to figure that out. Something as simple as that, I couldn't find in an evangelical work. It was like nobody had ever thought of. It. I had nobody to talk talk about it. And I mean, so that again became an orienting point in my dissertation. And then I discovered when I discovered what I what you know, I call divine plurality, it's like, well, there's got to be a Godhead, you know, this this has to relate to the Godhead in some way. And so that took me, you know, into into the fact that early Judaism used to teach a Godhead. They referred to it as two powers in heaven, you know, two Yahweh figures, you know, a father and a son kind of figure. And I thought, wait a minute, you know, the Jews used to teach this until the the, the second century. I, this is this is what prepped people in the first century for the for the Trinity, for Jesus as God, you know, in human form. And I mean, it just took me down all sorts of roads. And I remember sitting in the library, and I and I'm tracking on this. I'm tracking on everything I just mentioned, it, and a dozen other uh, topics, you know. It, and I thought to myself, there's just something wrong with this. I'm sitting here. And I, and I have all this Bible under my belt, and I am experiencing the thrill of rediscovery. But I know that the stuff that's just, you know, sort of putting my mind on fire here and, and really helping me understand lots of things in Scripture, I never heard any of these things in church.
1: I've never heard, yeah, and, I was going to say,
0: I've, I, half
1: of your book I've never heard. And, and, I, and I
0: know people are never going to hear this. And, I, and I, I just remember sitting there thinking, you know what, I can do that. I I can learn this stuff and I can, you know, communicate this to the person outside the guild, outside the academy. Because whether a lot of people don't realize that even believing, you know, faithful believing scholars, you know, they're they're, they're truly saved. I mean, they they trust Christ. But the way scholars, even believing scholars talk about the Bible is dramatically different than what you hear in church. And and that bothered me because I thought, you know, you ought to be trying to communicate the really good stuff, the really powerful insights into all sorts of passages. you're not trying to be deliberately intentionally trying to communicate that to just the normal person, but instead what we've got is we've got Jesus as the cosmic life coach you know on Sunday mornings. we've got the same Sunday school stories, but now they have adult illustrations again, the whole, my my whole thing about Sunday school should not be forever. You know, people are just stuck and and intelligent people, thinking people know when they're being asked not to think. And I just thought, you know, this, it's it's like, it's like I was born to do this because I really cared about it. And I had the tools, I had the training to do it. And so, you know, if I'm about anything, if I can use that, it's trying to you know, help people really understand Scripture. I have a podcast called The Naked Bible. We call it that because it's the Bible unfiltered. I'm not putting any clothes on it, okay? I'm not filtering it through creeds or traditions or denominations. It's just the Bible that it just by itself, in its own context, and and I'm not hostile to those things. I'm a member of a church, I'm an elder. I think that that's important. But at the end of the day, creeds and denominational distinctives are not scripture, and they are foreign contexts to the Bible. Okay, they are not the original context of the Bible, the context that produced the thing. And so this is what I have become sort of about, trying to help people look at the text, just take the text for what it is in its own context, and then you know just roll with that. You know, just just roll with that, and you and you'll be able to to see Scripture in a different way, and again, read it again for the first time, that sort of thing. And I, again, it's not marketing shtick. I say that stuff because that's exactly what happened to me. And again, I I wasn't a newbie. I'm in a doctoral program. Okay, but it's exactly what happened to me.
1: I want to okay. So I want to go to this. At what point? Because your stuff, I'm going to say, you're, and I think you're going to agree with me, but some of your teachings, some of your stuff has got to split hairs, and which makes it kind of fun, actually. What was the first time that you taught or what did you teach that really just kind of got your typical church leader or people just in a frenzy? Because. I mean, I read through your stuff. You talk about UFOs, the, the Nephilim, and, and which I think I'm pronouncing wrong and Ulta, which I knew about those. There's so many topics that you talk about that I really think would bother people that <laughs> do you remember your first one or, or one that comes to your mind uh, that you taught on?
0: Yeah, I, I think in, in terms of, of people being troubled, it's probably either the Divine Council in Psalm 82, or it's this is going to sound really weird. Or it was the idea that, that the serpent in Genesis 3 wasn't a member of the animal kingdom. And, and we, we already know that because of the New Testament. You know, Satan you know, the, is an angel of light, and he's the devil and the serpent. You know. but, but it's amazing how, how when you actually say or suggest that Eve could have been talking to a divine being, that you know she knew was was not just a an animal or something like that or then there's different ways to take the hebrew term nakash it can be translated shining one for instance which is a stock description of a divine being it can be translated the one the one who dispenses divine knowledge well he's certainly doing that he's trying to lead her astray it doesn't have to even be serpent it it, it just depends so stuff like that even though it's very consistent with what we would call theological orthodoxy. Well, i never heard that in church, so there must be something wrong with it. You know, you're must you're trying to be clever here and deceive me. It's like, no, I'm just it's just the text. I'm as scary as the text is. There it is. So a couple of those things, but you know, you mentioned that the UFO stuff. People have to realize, your listeners have to realize I'm into all sorts of kind of fringy pop culture things because a lot of those things like UFOs, ancient aliens, and whatnot, the people trying to peddle those kind of worldviews use the Bible to do it. Oh yeah, oh ancient aliens, you know, Ezekiel 1, that was a UFO. You know, don't don't you realize that? Haven't you read your Bible? You don't even know your Bible, you know. It's all that kind of stuff. chariots of fire, oh those are UFOs, you know. All this kind of stuff. You know, and Jesus is just one of them, you know. It, it, it they just go they rape and pillage the scripture all the time, but they're not the only ones. There's a lot of things out there on the internet with revisionist views of Jesus, all sorts of what I call paleo-babble, you know, just just nonsense about the ancient world and the Bible. You know, hey, did you know that that the line of Cain was fathered by the serpent, that the serpent and Eve actually, you know, had sex and then produced this other, you know, you know this is where we get the black race from. You know, it, it is a cesspool of the bizarre. And and since I, I'm i an ancient text guy, I'm an ancient history guy, and so I feel like it's my obligation to be the still small voice that's mostly ignored um, in, in the world of the internet, what I call Christian Middle Earth, or just Middle Earth, you know, on YouTube and the, and the internet, that, that I should be trying to say something to get people to think better about their Bible. Uh, a lot of these people, you know, I'll be honest with you, like I'll go and speak at UFO conferences, okay? I've, I've been to about half a dozen of these things. And if I had a dollar, maybe five, if I had five dollars for every time either at one of those things or when I do a show like Coast to Coast AM, you know, the late night show, one of these paranormal shows, for every person that said, you know, I used to be a Christian until... And then it's until I saw ancient aliens, until I read Eric von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods, until I read Zechariah Sitchin's the 12th Planet. until I didn't get this question answered in church, until when I, when I asked this question, the pastor thought that I, I needed therapy, you know, and, and, and dismissed me. I mean, just fill in the blank. There, There are a lot of people out there who basically, because they had questions, and ran into things that that their authority figures could not answer, that they just left the faith. They just took off. That's sad. They they assume. It is sad, and and it infuriates me because the reasons are so stupid. But uh, at the same time, I understand it because when they ask certain questions and the pastor doesn't have an answer or just doesn't want to touch that puppy with a 10-foot pole, they are led to assume wrongly that there aren't answers, that you're hiding something. The church is hiding something from me. There's this alternative other world out here, and I'm going to go out on, on the. I'm going to, you know, Google's going to be my church now, you know, and he's. It's going to be my source of spiritual teaching. They just do this, and so I write fiction to try to piggyback theology on fiction. I write paranormal science fiction stuff. I'll speak at these conferences. I do again these New Age shows. I do pagan talk shows. It's really. For, for people who have left the faith I want them to I want to give them answers and I want to say look I understand your reaction and maybe you were harmed by a Christian in, in some way I think it's typically some issue of personal pain in it, that, that I've found anyway I, but I want you to reconsider you know how you're thinking about the Bible in this way and I understand you know in, in some respects if I thought this you know what, what this Christian told you hey I'd be w- I'd be with you you know but but there's a better way to think about it so I, if you if you can you know reconsider We can have a conversation or if people are just totally outside, I like to to be into things that they find fascinating uh, enough to at least get them to the table to have a spiritual conversation. Because I'll be honest with you, you can have better and deeper spiritual discussions at a UFO conference than you can in church. (laughs) That's funny. Because those people are primed. They are primed to think about big picture things. Why are we here? Right. Is there a God? If if there's a God, what what's He like? You know, is there more than one? Like, what's our destiny here? Why are we here? You know, they're they're just primed to think about questions that are ultimately very theological, and and so you can really have good discussions, you know, with people, and, and again try to try to talk them in off the ledge a little bit, you know, so that you can again engage them with with who Jesus is and and how God looks at them, and you know. God wanting them and his family, you know, try to try to do something affirming in that way, but, but not, not go after them and rail against them and dismiss them and say, you know, you're just, you're just a nutcase. And, you know, it, it's a mixed bag. So I'm into all sorts of this stuff. I, I do biblical scholarship, straight biblical scholarship, you know, right for peer review and all that stuff. And I have a job that lends itself to that. But I, I, what really drives me is to try to, again, communicate biblical content to people. I, I just for the non-specialist, and then try to help people think well about Scripture. I don't like when primary texts, like the Bible, are abused. I don't like when people are manipulated with them. It, it just pushes my buttons, you know, when you know when I see that happening.
1: So, after I got done reading Supernatural, the one thought that came to my mind in, in the parallel of this, and maybe you can bring I'm just curious, but it made me think of, like, Zeus, and then, like, the God of... Water because you're talking about God, so and then I start thinking about demigods and like all of that, which I've never totally explored, but I've seen movies and stuff and uh how does all that play because I just I don't believe in coincidence, so that to me that is almost like another what is it the Greek version of it i I don't know I mean you tell me, but I'm like all I could think of was all these movies that I've watched that almost are parallel to what you've written except from a non-biblical perspective. Yeah. Well, I think a good a good segue into this would be
0: the the pagan talk show that i've been on uh, two times and and this guy his faith if you can call it that his religion i guess are, are to he worships the gods of greece and rome you know zeus apollo and you know, all this kind of stuff and so he uh had read supernatural and he wanted to talk and you know i've been on twice and, and he really enjoyed it and i enjoyed it too you know because in his words he he said you know it's really rare for me to find somebody that speaks my language and the thing that he didn't realize going in, but when he, he realized when he, when he read the book is that this whole, what I call the Deuteronomy 32 worldview about the gods, you know, and, and God forsaking the nations and putting them, assigning them to lesser gods. He goes, he goes that that's part of Greek and Roman thinking, you know, the, and, and I said, well, you sure, Acts 17, you know, Paul alludes to that, you know, and, and when he's talking to the Athenians there. So we actually had common ground. And, you know, when he asked me kind of the same question, he would ask things like, so what does the God of Israel want? Oh, I'm glad you asked, you know, because we can talk about how the Bible really lays this out. And so for your listeners, I think, you know, to be aware that these other systems are actually in terms of worldview, very consistent with biblical thinking. The difference, the main distinction is who is most high and why and what does that mean now i'll illustrate it this way if you ask the average christian hey why is the world so messed up you know why is it so bad you know all this depravity you know what why the average christian would say oh that's the fall okay if you ask the same question of an israelite or a first century jew that is not the answer you would get you would get the answer that, that would say well there, there's actually three reasons why the world is so hopelessly messed up now the falls the first one is that's where we have rebellion both divine and human enter into god's you know good world that he's created and so that that kick starts the problem the, the second problem is what happens in genesis 6 1 through 4 and it's not so much that the weird nephilim stuff because they, you know, they're, they're taken care of in biblical days according you know to the Old Testament. What's worse about that is they are blamed with teaching humans all sorts of things that really help humans destroy themselves and turn their hearts to idolatry. So that's number two. And number three is what happens at Babel. And we all know the story of the Tower of Babel. We, we heard that one in church, but what you don't hear is Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. It says, when the Most High divided up the nations he divided them up according to the number of the sons of god okay, but israel is yahweh's portion jacob is his allotted inheritance and deuteronomy 4 says it deuteronomy 17 deuteronomy 29 you, you track this idea what what happens is god's that were after the flood Okay, God has said he repeated the Edenic mandate: be fruitful, multiply, and I go out there and kickstart Eden. We want to restore that. We we all know that it you know it, it got ruined. We're going to restore that. So I'm giving you the same commands I gave to Adam and Eve. So what do they do? Well, they, they well let, let's let's go to Babylon and build a ziggurat. Well, what's a ziggurat? Ziggurat is part of a temple complex. You built a ziggurat to locate the deity, to bring the deity to you. Okay, to, so you set the terms, and God's like. Uh, excuse me, but I will not be tamed. Okay. Mm -hmm. I am not at your beck and call and God decides, okay, you don't want to listen to me again. I'm going to disinherit you. I'm going to divorce you. When the most high divided the nations, you know, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. I'm going to divorce myself from you and I'm going to assign lesser divine beings, lesser Elohim, less, you know, sons of God to be your placeholders. They're going to be your caretakers now you don't want to want to be you know in line with me i'm going to turn you over to them now that that situation turns out really badly we know that from psalm 82 these are the sons of the most high the sons of god that are getting judged and excoriated by god himself in psalm 82. they become corrupt they rule chaotically they seduce the israelites into worshiping them this is the old testament explanation so
1: real quick mike are they angels are they spiritual beings like they're, they're spiritual beings okay. angel okay. is actually a job description okay, uh, okay. it doesn't really
0: it's, it's a term that, that doesn't tell you what a thing is it tells you what a thing does it's a gotcha. messenger okay. okay so these are spiritual beings and and the rest of the Old Testament but we don't know where they came from correct They're they're all created beings okay. I mean, you have Psalm 148 you got Psalm 33 you got Nehemiah 9 I mean God gets God created all things visible and invisible Colossians 1.16. And they are, were originally working for him. But when they get assigned to the nations, they go astray. They become hostile. They become adversarial. They they don't rule according to to God's good justice. You know, his, his what the way he wants the nations run. He's they're human beings. They're still created in his image. God wants them taken care of. But but what he does when he, he divorces himself from them, it's it's a judgment. It's a punishment. And then he turns around right after Babylon. What what does the biblical story say is the next event? God calls Abraham. He says, look watch i'm disinheriting I'm divorcing myself from a, a personal relationship with the rest of you with all you nations and you got lesser lesser you know placeholders now. Watch what I do I'm going to create a new people from nothing and they're going to be my people now I'm going to make a covenant with this guy Abraham. And it's through him, he will produce a seed, a descendant. One of his descendants will be the seed through which all of the nations will be blessed. I'm going to bring you back into relationship with me through this guy, through this family, through this race, through this this people, and through one of his seed. Of course, we know that's Jesus. But this is the situation. You know, it it goes to hell in a handbasket. I mean, it, you have you have actually three re- divine rebellions going on and this is why the world is so messed up well i go on the pagans you know talk show and he knows all this he's quoting me plato he's quoting me you know this or that you know greek text about how the gods are you know assigned to different nations and nations to other gods and i'm like yeah it's the same worldview but you know what okay the most high is the god of israel and you ask me what it wants He wants you back. This is why Paul, in the New Testament, links the resurrection half a dozen times with the conquest, the subduing, the defeat of the principalities and the powers and the rulers and authorities and the thrones and dominions. They become subservient to the resurrected Christ. What Christ did Delegitimizes their authority over the nations. This is why Paul goes. He goes to all these pagan places and he says, "Look, yeah, I know. You know, you guys have these gods because God disinherited back and back. We, We get it, okay? But I want you to know that the time has come that, in the eyes of the Most High, you're not only permitted." To abandon these gods but he demands it he wants it you know th- this becomes the you know paul is the apostle to the gentiles this is his message and so the it's a struggle now these are real divine entities they're real supernatural entities you know when when we're at the exodus okay when god says in exodus 12 this night at passover this night i will have victory over the gods of egypt he doesn't mean This night, I will have victory over these beings that we all know really don't exist. Wink, wink. No. Where is, it strips him of glory. Look, I got news for you. We think that that the gods are just like cartoon characters, you know, or like Marvel's Avengers or something. They're they're not real. Look, I'm better than Captain America, because at least (laughs) I'm real, okay? Right. You know, when, when Moses says, who is like you, Yahweh, among the gods, he actually means what he says. When 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 Scripture says that Yahweh is the God of gods, it's not kidding. Okay, you can't. You, otherwise, you're comparing the Lord to nothing. There is no glory in that. This is not the worldview.
1: So they understood that. They understood that that there was God. Like, where did that break off in history? Because I have to to tell you, you know, I've I've even looked at that that way myself. Like, well, there is no other gods. There's just God. But that's not biblical. But that's how most people think.
0: I would say there's lots of Elohim out there. Okay, Psalm 82, God is, you know, is judging the gods. Okay, there's lots of Elohim, lots of spirit beings out there. And Yahweh's one of them. But none of them are him. Okay, there is none like him. Either Yahweh is species unique. He is their creator. You know what makes what makes the God of Israel different is not the word Elohim. What makes the God of Israel different is the way he's described. He is the lone sovereign. He is the only creator. He is the only one who gets characterized by things like omniscience and omnipotence. No other Elohim, no other, you know, divine being in the Bible is ever spoken of in this way. Okay, Yahweh is is alone. You know, he he is he is what we have always thought he was. You know traditional you know theology here. But you, you have to realize this is where Paul inherits the principalities and powers. Think about what the way Paul describes. He, Paul uses the word demon occasionally. Okay, and, and you know two or three times, whatever it is. But look at his vocabulary. What does he call the powers of darkness? Principalities, powers, rulers, thrones, dominions, authorities. What do they all have in common? They are all words used in the Bible and outside the Bible for geographical dominion. Every one of them. Okay, so he Paul
1: knows what he's dealing with. Mike, before we get off track, I want to ask you this though. So, when when God created us, He called us to have dominion. Yes. We were supposed to multiply that dominion. Those these places were supposed to be ours, but we lost them.
0: Right. Not only that, but there's a why. Do, why does the New Testament refer to believers as sons of God? Children of God, that language has a deep Old Testament context you know in, initially, you know God creates human beings he already has a God already has a family job thirty eight the sons of God, you know the divine sons of God are, are there at the creation of the foundation of the world He already has a family, so God decide, well, you know what i 'm going to create this place called Earth. And I'm going to create a different kind of being. He's going to be, you know, they're going to be embodied, but they're going to they're going to be like me. They're going to be imagers. Okay, they're going to be my representatives there, just like you guys are my representatives here in the spiritual world. They're going to be representatives there. You know what? You know what? We're going to go down there and live with them. This is what Eden is. Eden is the place where heaven intersects with earth. It becomes the divine abode. Okay, the, the Scholars refer to it as the cosmic mountain. This is why Eden is referred to as both a garden and a mountain. This is where gods live. Of gardens and mountains in the ancient ancient history so god comes down here and he wants us to be members of his family along with his other family it should be the most normal thing in the world for humans to be living with god in in, in a supernatural sense and context even while you know they're embodied this is you know we, we nowadays because we're after the fall the new testament talks about believers being glorified getting new bodies you know so that they can they are fit they are made fit for a heavenly existence this is what the original plan was to have a blended family and the family also happens to be a business okay there's stuff to do it's not just you're members of a family but now you are, we are co-laborers you are i'm going to let you participate in what i want done on this planet I want you to go and and be mul- and multiply. There's, it's going to take a lot of you to do this. I want you to go out and make every place in the world like this place, like Eden. You know, Eden wasn't the earth. Eden had geography. It's just a little piece of earth.
1: I love that you're hitting on this because how many times have we heard just like escapist like theology? Mm-hmm. Like so many people think like, okay, we're the whole point of life is just so we can die and get to heaven <laughs> and right. play harps. And so that is so opposite of God's original plan in Genesis.
0: Okay, let's go back to the sons of God thing. Okay, so God allots the sons of God to the nations, and they, they become corrupt. They become God's enemies. All right, well, well how, many, how many nations are there? What, are the, what nations are we talking about? Now, in, in the biblical world, again, this is all the geography they knew. We get a list of the nations that, that God divided at Babel. We get that in Genesis 10. There are 70 of them all right, you know, the, the, then that, that number becomes significant. But eventually the goal is, okay, once all the Gentiles, once the other nations are brought back into the family— then Eden is going to be restored. This is why Revelation ends with the Edenic vision. But one of the neatest lines—some or some of the neatest lines—are in Revelation. Because you know, I don't really—I don't know how much I get into this in supernatural, but in in divine council thinking in the Old Testament, it had three tiers. There was God, the Godhead, at the top, and there's the sons of God in the middle. That's an administrative term. They get they get the most important jobs. And at the bottom, you have the messengers, the angels. So you have God, the sons of God, and angels. These are all hierarchical job descriptions. Okay. Well, isn't it? fascinating that believers get the same label as the middle tier the ones that are over the angels in first corinthians 6 when paul is trying to convince the corinthians to stop fighting among themselves you know over you know what you know wealth and resources and all this stuff he says look people don't you know that you're going to judge angels don't you know that you're going to rule over angels you could translate the term either way don't you know that what is, what is Paul talking about? I'll tell you what he's talking about. He's talking about what John says in Revelation. To him that overcomes, okay, talking to believers, to him that overcomes, I will put him over the nations. And he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus actually quotes a messianic psalm about you and me. To him that overcomes, I will put them over the nations. He says it twice re- in Revelation, two Revelation, you know what that means? That means at the in the eschaton, when it's all said and done, we displace the sons of God, who are currently over the nations, we displace them, we judge them, and we rule over the rest of God's spiritual family on this planet. We become the newly reconstituted divine council, the divine assembly. You know, the, the, the whole cloud of witnesses thing in Hebrews 11, there's, a, there's an Old Testament history to that phrase. Jesus, in, in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, he presents us, he presents believers to the Father, in quote, in the congregation, in the council. Okay? And he is not ashamed, you know, when he does that in Hebrews 1 and 2, he is not ashamed to call us his siblings, his brothers and sisters, because he was made like us. And you, you read Hebrews 1 and 2 with this worldview in mind. This is our destiny. What, what, what the Bible is really about, it's a cosmic, supernatural epic that really needs to, to be read supernaturally so that we understand who we are, what our status is. And again, we, we need to be redeemed to reclaim this status. We need to you know accept Christ. We need to understand our status, who we are. And then we need to understand our destiny. This everything is gonna come full circle in in the biblical story. And in the meantime, we have this struggle over us and struggle over Earth. Because the divine beings that are in rebellion, okay, they understand you know, after the after the cross, they understand what's going on now. And and how does this work? You know, in real life, how does this work? How do you move herds? How do you move masses of people? It's about thinking, it's about thought patterns. It's about getting them to believe certain things about themselves, about God, about Christ, about why they're even here. It's a moment-by-moment moment struggle between God using invisibly, God using his divine agents in our lives, his other other human agents in our lives. Everything we do has a ripple effect that just ripples out in so many layers to other people, you know, just just. How How Providence just generates you know so much influence, every little thing that we do, it actually matters, and this is what we're designed uh, to do you know we're, we're supposed to represent God and interact with other imagers, and ideally, that's supposed to lead us to the truth, it's supposed to lead us back home, you know lead us to Christ, but the other side is doing the same thing, trying to subtly, invisibly, imperceptibly. Influence our thinking. Influence what? Because because as we think, that is how we will behave. And th- th- this is how you move herds. This is how you you control people and whole populations, masses of people. You have to control how they think about a small set of really really important questions. And again, this is what's going on behind us. We I think we really need as Christians to avoid the deeply flawed idea that. Oh, I saw something spectacular happen. And, 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 you know, God can do what he wants. You know, I don't don't have any problem with that. But I saw something spectacular. Man, God was working at that. God was working that day. God was really present there. I got news for you. Most of the time God's present, you're never going to see it. Okay, there's this thing called the unseen hand. There's this thing called providence. God isn't just engaged. He doesn't just sort of care when something big happens. Okay, God's interest is unrelenting. It's moment by moment, but those who are hostile to him in the spirit world, their interest is the same, and we are just not cognizant of it. Why? because we're modern, we're
1: sophisticated, we're scientific. We don't think like this anymore I got to ask you this. this just came to my mind. i mean there's so many thoughts as you're talking to. I'm thinking of years of conversations. But you know, where is so many Christians don't realize that there's, I'm, I'm listening to you thinking, okay, there's this spiritual battle going on, right? If they're fighting against us, what would you say to the, to the average Christian listening or the person listening saying, well, how do I overcome that? Stop, stop presuming
0: that there's a spiritual battle. Only when you see something bizarre, you are being duped. Okay. You are being trained to only take the spiritual world seriously. When something strange blows up in your face, okay, or when you see or hear some strange story, that's a distraction. Okay, you need to be, be, be cognizant of the spirit beings are intelligent beings. They just, they're, you know, they're the invisible part of all things visible and invisible. When they manifest, okay, that was strange and they're they there, they're present. There's something's going on there. But don't be misled into thinking that is the only activity that they engage in. Spirit beings, again, the whole thing on both sides is about how we think, how we are, we are led or misled into thinking certain thoughts that will influence certain behaviors. Now, God took the step of giving us revelation. It's called the Bible. It's called scripture. That, that, would, that would be sort of a, a step ahead. We have a reference point. We can, we can actually learn things. You know, the other side, you know, you can say, well, they mimic that in all sorts of ways. And, and you know, I'll grant that. But it, it's a battle for the mind. It's always been a battle for the mind because as we think, as, as we believe certain things, that will influence how we behave. It'll influence real simple things like, do you really believe that this world is not your home? Do you really believe that? If you really believe that, that is going to influence how you process tragedy. It's going to influence how you process, you know, personal harm. It's going to influence how you process, you know, evil. Okay, if you really believe in your heart of hearts that this world is not my home. This is not the terminal point for me. That is going to influence the way you handle everything and your response in a spiritual sense to all sorts of things. I think, you know, joy, let's take joy. Joy is not, oh, I'm giddy and happy, I'm clicking my heels and, you know, I'm I'm a little, you know, I'm I'm getting a little silly here. And, you know, some people have the personality, that's the way they express it. What joy really is, theological definition, is it is a theistic optimism about life. That, you know, another way of putting it, God is in control. We're going to trust God with this. We're going to actually believe that God knows what's going on and God will respond to it. God will shepherd us through. And you know what? Even if it's still hard, this world is not my home. Do we really believe these things?
1: That's good. Well, I I could keep asking you questions. My typical show, we go for about 30 or 40 minutes and we're way over. So I I try to keep it for for listeners. I do want to ask you, how do our listeners find you? Because you there's no way we could – I mean, we've barely scratched the surface in some of the content that I've seen on your website, read your book. How do our listeners find more of you, your podcast, all that stuff? Well, the, the Nerve Center is dr, as in
0: doctor, drmsh.com, so doctor and then my initials, drmsh.com, and you can – Pretty much find everything I do on that, like the blog and the podcast. If you want to go directly to the podcast, you can find the Naked Bible podcast on iTunes, and of course, you know you could just go to nakedbiblepodcast.com. And again, hopefully, your listeners will remember why we call it that. We're we're just trying to give you scripture in its own context, and and hoping that it will you know you'll just experience the rediscovery of scripture. There's there's just so much there that our modern blinders. And, and, you know, prevent us from seeing it. And we get we get the Bible filtered through tradition. And, again, tradition is not an awful thing, but it's not Scripture. It's not Scripture. There's a lot more to see.
1: Okay, so I've skipped several questions, but there's one that I never skip. And, <laughs> and, and, and I've never skipped it so far. But the question is, if you could go back to the younger you, what advice would you give yourself to propel you into your future? Now, you, nothing's going to change, but you're going to basically – like uh, Barty McFly or uh, Tom Hanks going back into time to tell yourself something. What would you say? And nothing's
0: going to change.
1: No, you can't change. Like you're still going to go through everything you're going to go through in life, but you're just going to you're going to give yourself advice. Yeah, that is important
0: because, like I said earlier, all, all the really big decisions in my life were more or less made for me by providence, and again, I think in God's wisdom, so that I couldn't mess it up. If nothing would change, boy. I wish I could go back, you know, maybe to when I was nine, and say, "Believe what you're hearing here in this little home Bible study, in this little family devotional time about the gospel." I mean, it would have saved me seven years. I would could have had maybe more of a of a, a Christian experience as a young person. So maybe pay attention to this. Believe. Or, you know, (laughs) less generously, try to pay attention to life a little bit more. You know, just, you know, don't be clueless. You know, everything, just the lesson that it all happens, you know, for a purpose. If I would have learned that a little bit earlier, I think that could have helped me in in certain ways.
1: Well, Mike, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're super busy and taking the time to jump on here with us sharing your stuff. you are listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to NakedBiblePodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at NakedBiblePodcast.com
2: Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode two forty-one, Psalm twenty-four and twenty-nine in the ancient context. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey Mike, how are you doing this week? Well, well it's it's been a difficult week. Uh, some
0: listeners may know my dad is not in in good health. I mean I mentioned that in the newsletter from time to time. So he's had a rough week, so pray for him and, and my mom especially. You know, if, if this is, you know, my dad's time to go and it's, it is serious, then, uh, I'm more concerned for her. You know, he's a believer and, and he's ready, but, uh, it would be rough for her obviously to be married, I don't know, 50 some years. So yeah, it's,
2: it's been a rough week and we'll just, you know, we'll see, we'll see. That's all you can do is wait. Absolutely. We all are in our prayers. And also, uh, for those that are in Denver, we may or may not be able to uh, have that on Friday night, so stay tuned. We'll,
0: yeah, if I end up having to bail you know, and go home, that'll be the reason.
2: So, so yeah. just be on the lookout for that and uh, keep Mike's family in your prayers. Uh, Mike, uh, we have a topic this week I'm uh, pretty excited uh, about. I'm sure you are getting back into the Old Testament. So, You mentioned that you wanted to do something for yourself, so I, I assume this, is, <laughs> this subject is close to something you're interested in.
0: Yeah, it is. You know, I, I get questions about, you know, the value of interpreting things in their ancient context. I got one this week. Um, actually, it was on an interview where one of the, the questioners sort of criticized me for inserting ancient stuff into the Bible, like Ugaritic stuff. And, of course, they didn't understand that the point was, no, I, I can't really talk about parallels between the Hebrew Bible and ancient Near Eastern material unless... There's actually stuff in the Bible already that is analogous, so I don't think they quite got the point, and that you know set my wheels in, in you know, turning that maybe, maybe it'd be nice to go back to have another one of these topical specific episodes where I can like at least illustrate why this is legit and and the value of it. So here we are with Psalm 24 and Psalm 29. All right, looking forward to it. All right, well, let's just jump in here. we got, you know a good good bit of ground to cover. I'm going to read Psalm 24. We'll just take them in, in uh, numerical order. And I'm going to read the psalm, and then we'll just drill down into a few particulars. So, Psalm 24 begins, and again, this is ESV, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. or that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Now, again, just to drill down into a few things, there's a lot of things that we could talk about, but I want to just, again, pinpoint a few of the details that again get us into ancient cognate material, and we'll take a few rabbit trails along the way, a few sidebars but psalm twenty four as you know a number of commentators have pointed out over the years you know in the, in their work on the psalms, and i'm I'm going to be referencing you know a serious commentary like word biblical commentary i'm going to quote a few things from that particular volume, but scholars have pointed out that there's basically three types of Psalter material in this psalm that often characterize entire psalms elsewhere. For instance, verses 1 and 2 is a hymn, Uh, it praises Yahweh for his establishment of the world and his dominion over it. Verses 3 through 6 is an ascent uh, psalm, or at least that portion of it, who shall ascend, verse 3 says, the hill of the Lord. This is sort of a subset of Psalms, ascent Psalms. Many scholars look for again this kind of language as indicating the ascent of a pilgrim up to the temple again up Mount Zion, or a psalm after the exile describing a return to Zion. You know, again, it, it's sort of a geographical reference that we either we're either in the land and we go up to the temple, or we're we're outside the land and in our journey to the land, when we hit Jerusalem, we ascend up you know to to Zion. Uh, the language here might sound anachronistic, uh, but it may not be. And that, what I'm getting at, at there is if you're looking at it as sort of a return to Zion psalm, well then it doesn't make sense to have it a psalm of David, because this is well after David. And even the whole idea of, of ascending you know, up to the temple, verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Okay, it, it, it feels like a clear reference to the temple. And when you get to, to verses 7 through 10, the, the doors and the gates, again, the, the, the temple idea. Well, there was no temple in David's time. This is a psalm of David, you know, again, ostensibly. And after the exile, there was no temple either. So what we, we have to deal with that. So the language appears anachronistic. You know, the psalm itself could be kind of an editorial composite, you know, a later editor wanting to associate the kingship language in the psalm with the house of David. And, and that's legit because the 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 English translation, a psalm of David, is Le David Mesmore. That could just as well mean a psalm or a song for David, on behalf of David, with respect to David. I mean, it, it doesn't have to mean of David. There are other ways to take that phrase. Uh, if the right context in, you know, in view is worship, it may be a reference to ascending to wherever God's house was. In, in David's day, that would have been the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is referred to as the lord's house in joshua 6:24 uh, for instance I'll, I'll just read that they turned the city or they burned the city with fire and everything in it only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the lord Now that's a reference to something happening in the conquest there is no temple there's no temple complex they're not even in you know the land so the the only reference to the house of the lord there has to be the tabernacle complex in 1 Samuel 1, nine you get the same kind of thing. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah arose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Well, there is no temple. This is Samuel's day. Uh, so the, the reference has to be to the tabernacle. And if we look at it that way, well, then that, all of that would align with Davidic authorship. You know, the psalm that, that David actually composed. Uh, for other reasons again namely stuff we're going to talk about a little bit later a the con a context of tabernacle prior to the exile is probably preferable anyway verses seven through ten again uh, first part was a hymn the second part is one of these ascent kind of situations and the third part uh, is uh, again a subset of psalms and, and other poetic portions in the Hebrew Bible and that is the procession of the ark—it's some kind of liturgy, you know—a a ceremonial or, or liturgical sort of situation. Uh, Craigie, for instance, uh, in his commentary on uh, in the Word Biblical Commentary series, Volume One, he has three. There are three volumes of the Psalms. Craigie uh, was one of the writers. I he might have been the only writer of Volume One. The second edition is what I'm going to be quoting from. But he he writes this. He says these verses are associated with a procession of the ark. Again, it is liturgical in form, having a question-response format. The ark bear's declaration comes in verse 7. Second, the question posed by the gatekeepers of the temple. Uh, again, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? And again, the gatekeepers would ask. Third, the response of the bears of the Ark. You know, well, it's, it's the Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. Fourth, the Craigie notes, the further question of the gatekeepers, uh, you know, continues. Again, they ask actually a series of questions, and, you know, you get this question-answer back-and-forth response sort of thing. It's common in liturgical texts, is the point. Uh, Craigie notes, the original kind of setting presupposed by such a procession is provided in Second Samuel 6, 12 through 19. I'll just I'll just read a little bit of that. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Again, it just goes and describes a little bit of that procession. So you have a couple of these scenes in the Hebrew Bible about transporting the Ark, moving the Ark around. So in this psalm, you, you get kind of all of that packed into 10 verses, you know, some of these psalms subsets and these specific themes that can really sort of be evident or, or, or frame entire psalms elsewhere in the Psalter. Now, a little sidebar here uh, on the psalm titles and superscriptions, I think it's probably worth uh, mentioning something here. I'm going to reference here the Dictionary of the Old Testament uh, wisdom and poetic books, that particular volume in the IVP uh, series, uh, the, the material on, this, on the superscriptions, the psalm titles, is written by D.A. Ruggerman, and he notes this, evangelical scholarship generally attributes significant authority to the titles. Derek Kidner, and he, he wrote a few commentaries in the Tyndale series, Kidner even appears to treat them as inspired. And canonical, noting that the New Testament even builds arguments on authorship notes. Uh, again, he has a few New Testament references, like Matthew or Mark twelve thirty-five through thirty-seven, uh, Acts 13, 35 through thirty-seven, those sorts of things. Well, again, these are a bit problematic, despite again the the, the sort of positive orientation of, in general of evangelical scholarship, because of some of the things we've already you know hinted at. Let, let me just. Again, draw from um, you know some of what Brugerman says in this dictionary entry about the problems. Number one, some doubt that composing psalms is what one might expect of David when he was hiding in caves and fighting the Philistines. So you have a reference in Psalm 57:1, uh, which again is supposed to be a psalm of David, and you know at that time in David's life he's like in battle. You know he's he's doing military stuff. Uh, there are other psalms like that. So some people say, well, like, would he really, like, have time to do this? Well, the answer is, well, he, sure, he could have, because you have there are lots of examples from, like, World War One, World War Two, where people write poems, they write, you know, even portions of books while they're in prison or while they're in the trenches, you know, that I mean, this, this happens. So the, the circumstances don't specifically rule out uh, David being able to do this. Second, uh, Brueggemann comments, some see historical tension with Old Testament and broader ancient Near Eastern history when, you know, with respect to the titles. Psalm fifty six says that David composed it, quote, when the Philistines seized him in Gath, unquote. However, the historical record of the Bible itself says that David took himself, or David, you know, took himself to the king of Gath to escape Saul. In other words, he he went there. So nobody brought him he in effect brought himself you know 1 Samuel 21:10 1 Samuel 27:1 through 3 so it it seems like that doesn't really work however again Brueggemann notes we should note that David began to fear the king of Gath he feigned insanity and escaped to the cave of Adullam 1 Samuel 21:12 through 23, one. so what what he means by mentioning that is that well you know maybe he was held there against his will you know, when he, when he was at, yeah, sure, he went there by himself, but maybe there was some problem there that we aren't specifically told about, because David very obviously came up with a ruse to get out of Dodge, uh, so maybe maybe it, it does fit. Several Davidic Psalms, of course, mention the temple. Again, ours is one of them, Psalm 24, before it was actually built. However, the tabernacle, again, could be called the Lord's house, So, as we saw. So that's not... Again, an insurmountable problem. Third, some say that the third person reference in the psalm titles, a psalm of David, it's like somebody's talking about David, seems incongruent with a first person reference in the psalm itself. So if David was writing it, would he really include the line, a psalm of David? Well, maybe, maybe not. It just seems like somebody else is, is writing it to David or for David. Again, that, le David mesmore, could be translated that way. So... How much should we read into these titles? Uh, And Brueggemann notes that, for that reason and others, this this doesn't necessarily undermine Davidic authorship of these titles, since you know we could take it in other ways. And sometimes writers do refer to themselves in the third person on occasion. So you know, what what do we make of that? Again, probably that you know, if you want to assign a lot of importance to the Psalm titles, there's probably a way to get there, you know, and and have them make sense. But on the other hand, you know there there are indications that they might be secondary. They might have been added by by somebody else at a different time period or something. So this, this is why this is sort of a tug and war. It's a minor discussion. It's not really a big uh, deal in Old Testament study. But again, just so that you know why there are two sides to the titles to the superscriptions. So let's get back to Psalm 24. Again, it begins you know with this you know, declaration of Yahweh's creation and supremacy, and then it goes into this ascent language. Now, essentially, the psalm is about an ascent to worship Yahweh, the creator and lord of all creation, in his house, whether that's the tabernacle or temple, wherein is the ark. That's the place or the symbol of Yahweh's presence. The psalm presents Yahweh as king. Basis for his kingship is his creative power, And subjugation of the chaos waters. We see the conditions necessary for worshiping the king, and what follows: clean hands, pure heart, which refers to disposition, not perfect behavior, which of course is impossible. Someone whose heart inclines away from evil is the point, and toward Yahweh, not towards some other god. Clean hands, pure heart. If you if you hear a preacher basically preaching that this this means you you know God requires sinless perfection in your behavior, well you you know feel free to ignore that person, because God's not going to require an impossibility. What he's talking about is disposition. The ark procession that follows reminds us of the divine warrior who led Israel into the land by conquest. You know, when I go back to the tabernacle, the conquest settings, they're, they're traveling with the ark, and of course with the angel and, and whatnot. So that's what it reminds me, it reminds us of, this divine warrior thing leading Israel into the land. And you know, therefore, it speaks of Israel as Yahweh's portion. In the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, among all humanity, Israel was created by Yahweh himself after Babel, and you know, he has chosen a land, and that's where they're going. This act, again, this procession would further remind Israelites that Yahweh is Lord of all nations. Again, he's traveling, you know, through these spaces. He's defeating their enemies. And why? Because, well, he actually owns all the nations. Anyway, he disinherited them, and he chose, he created them, and chose Israel for his own. So, again, these sorts of things would have been, you know, reminders. You know, this kind of language in the psalm would have been reminders to the people listening to it. Now, it's fairly easy to see all that in a more-than-surface reading, but there are other nuggets that can only be discerned if we were literate Israelites familiar with Canaanite literature, or even non- or semi-literate Israelites nevertheless familiar with the stories of Baal and El's counsel from wider Canaanite religion. That's where we want to drill down here. So let's go back to verses 1 and 2, and some of... Some of you out there in the audience, again, uh, because of your familiarity with Unseen Realm, you know, my book there and other episodes we've done, probably have, have already picked these things out, at least these two. Listen to the verses. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas. The Hebrew term there is yamim. The lemma is yam. Okay, store that away. Yam means sea. In Hebrew, the plural is yamim. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The word is neharot. The lemma is nahar. So remember, yam and nahar. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. Why? Because he has founded that world. He he created it. He founded the world upon yam and upon nahar. So he has mastered, he has brought order by creating an inhabitable world and he has put it on the back so as so, so to speak he has he has nestled it on top of put it on the back of yam and nahar i'm going to read you a little section from craigie's commentary here just just so that you know that what i'm going to say and what follows isn't just mike making stuff up i mean this is this is Scholarship 101 for people who do Old Testament and Semitics. Okay, so Craigie from his commentary, again, second edition, first Psalms volume in the Word Biblical series. The hymn begins with an affirmation of the Lord's dominion over the created world and its inhabitants. That dominion is based upon the fact that God himself fixed and established the world. At first sight, it appears as if the language of verse 2 reflects primitive cosmology. The world, like a floating saucer, is anchored upon the seas. Yet the language is more profound and contains within it a transformation of Canaanite Ugaritic cosmology. Or cosmogony, excuse me. Yam, literally sea, who is also called Nahar, literally river, represented a threat to order in Canaanite mythology. The conquest of Yam by Baal represented the subjugation of chaotic forces and the establishment of Baal's kingship. The Hebrew poet, using the terms Yam and Nahar in a demythologized and depersonified sense, depicts forcefully the Lord's creation of an ordered world upon seas and rivers, symbolizing the subdued forces of chaos. The symbolism of the language is significant. Just as in the underlying Ugaritic myth, the conquest of Yom culminated in kingship. So too the Lord's creative work, as described here, is linked with his kingship in verses 7 through 10, who is this king of glory. Now, this is a good example of a polemic response to Baal theology. Okay? Now, this is me now. We, we've, we just ended uh, Craigie's quote. Now, this is a good example of this kind of thing that we talk about on the podcast a lot, you know, the ancient Near Eastern polemic, uh, in this case of Baal theology. It's not Baal who brought order out of chaos. It isn't Baal who keeps the waters of chaos at bay. Baal is not Lord. Yahweh is. Baal was called king of the gods at Ugarit, and he's the, the co-ruler with El. But Yahweh is king, not Baal. Now, another a, a little sidebar here again. There is a propensity, even among evangelical Old Testament scholars, to think only in terms of Mesopotamia and not Canaanite literature when it comes to creation language in these sorts of psalms, these sorts of instances. Now, I'm bringing this up because occasionally I'll get a note you know about uh maybe something John Walton says or somebody else sounds a little different than what I'm saying and one of the reasons is is that Walton for some reason is you know he's sort of fixed on Mesopotamian material that that's kind of his default what he looks for I'm I'm not sure why but maybe maybe he just likes that more but I'm going to read you something from uh Longman's book Trumper Longman uh in his book, Psalms, An Introduction and Commentary, also InterVarsity Press. He's quoting Walton, referring to Walton here, in this psalm, Psalm 24. This is just to illustrate. Contrary to ancient Mesopotamian creation accounts, and he quotes Walton. He gives a a reference there. Contrary to ancient Mesopotamian creation accounts, though, there is not a hint of conflict between the Lord and the sea in the description of creation. And then he adds, but see Psalm seventy-four. So you know, good for Tremper there. Uh, so what? You know, we, we don't we don't need to have Mesopotamian material like the Tiamat battle from Enuma Elish. Uh, whether that is is the point of Genesis one one through three or not, we don't we don't really need it. You, that could actually be Ugaritic as well, because of to and then the the etymology of that. It doesn't matter. We do indeed have conflict, chaos-kampf, okay, is the German term, in these passages. But it doesn't come from Mesopotamia. It comes from Canaanite literature. It comes from Ugaritic literature. And in this commentary, there's no word about Canaanite material. Now, I point this out again because sometimes evangelicals don't see ancient Near Eastern connections clearly, or they don't draw attention to them because they're fixated on Mesopotamia. Well, our, our eyes sometimes need to move away from Mesopotamia. Again, this this is the kind of thing that creates a bit of a disconnect between the way Walton talks about the divine council and divine beings and the way I do. He's always looking for parallels in Mesopotamia, and if he doesn't find them, he says, "Oh, we can't say this about that, this or that about the divine council." And my objection is, why 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 should we care if that we have Mesopotamian parallels? The better parallels are Ugaritic, and they're clear, and there's a bunch of them. So again, I just want to point this out because. It's not, you know, I don't really know why. I mean, John is certainly aware of this material, but he has this propensity to filter the Old Testament material through Mesopotamia. And I think in some cases that makes a lot of sense to do. In other cases, it really doesn't make any sense to do. And you're going to miss some things. You're going to, you're going to, your attention is going to be deflected away from certain things that are important. So again, I, I, just, I just thought I'd point that out because I do get you know, some questions on that. So back to the psalm again. Let's go to verses 7 through 10, and we talked in verses 1 and 2 about you have two clear references to Baal's conflict with Yam and Nahar. And, and in, in the Ugaritic Canaanite religion, Baal has this battle with Yam, again, who is also called Nahar, you know, with sea and rivers, okay? He has this battle, and he, he defeats Yam, and the result of that is Baal becomes king in the, in the Canaanite the Ugaritic story. First two verses are a clear allusion to this. And again, Baal isn't the king. Baal isn't the one who subdues chaos. Baal doesn't do any of this stuff. It's Yahweh. And it sets up what follows. So you have this king deity. You've got this creator deity. How should we approach him? Well, verses 3 through 6, with clean hands and a pure heart. Okay, that, that's what he wants. You know, he doesn't, he's not talking about perfected performance. He wants a disposition that seeks him as God and seeks righteousness, even though we're humans, we're going to fail. But this is the orientation, the disposition of our hearts. And wants his blessing, You know, wants that relationship, and does not follow some other God. And then he hit verses 7 through 10. Craigie, again, just to, to another little note from his work. Kingship of God is the central theme in the last section of the psalm, verses 7 through 10. The basic concept involved was in in no sense unique to Hebrew theology, for many ancient Near Eastern nations attributed the role of kingship to their deities. The kingship of Baal, following his conquest of Yom, was central to Ugaritic mythology. Again, and we see how the Hebrew writer, the Israelite writer, the biblical writer, is shooting at Baal in the first two verses. Well, he's going to shoot at Baal again, verses 7 through 10. Because he's already answered his own questions here in 7 through 10. You know, who's the king of glory? He's already answered that in verses 1 and 2. So Baal's going to get his nose rubbed in it again in verses 7 through 10. Now the key phrases here that would have made literate Israelites or someone really familiar with you know, Ugaritic religion, there are key phrases that would have made their ears perk up. And they are, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. You say, what in the world is that? Well, just hang on. Baal's victory, again, over Yom and Nahar, has a context of its own. His victories ensure his status as king of the gods. That's what he wins when he defeats Yom, Yom slash Nahar, okay? Now, that section of the Baal cycle in which that battle occurs, and, and again, it's set up by a particular scene in El's Council, that section of the Baal Cycle is about kingship. The whole, the whole section of the Baal Cycle there is about establishing Baal as king of the gods. So let's read some of that, some of the Baal Cycle, and see if it sounds a little familiar. And I'm going to read from Nicholas Wyatt's translation from his, his book, Religious Texts from Ugarit. This is the second edition. And as far as the Baal Cycle uh, reference, this is going to be KTU uh, 2.1. Uh, line 17 through 28, also known as CTA 2 again, two dash one. this line 17 through 28. So here's, let's just read again. Some read through this this section of the bail cycle. The message of Yom, your master. So let me just stop there. In the first line. The scene is Yom has sent messengers, Malachim, okay, to El's council, and specifically, he's going to be obliquely, these messengers are going to be obliquely talking to Baal, because Baal has emerged as a rival. So when he says, message of Yom, actually it's more than one messenger, but they say, message of Yom, your master. Okay, Yom is king of the gods now. And again, Baal has emerged as a competitor. Uh, So it just sets the tone right off the bat. Message of Yom, your master, of your lord, ruler, Nahar give up the God whom you obey. So he's speaking to the divine council, and, and Baal is among you know, the group, okay? And, and so he's really talking to Baal, but he's speaking to the whole group. So he says to the, the, the gods are going to be in the scene a little bit, in a few lines. He's speaking to the group and says, give up the God whom you obey. Now Wyatt has a footnote here. As king among the gods, Yom's legal right to their obedience is beyond question. It is not clear why Baal is the god whom the others obey, unless they are plotting rebellion, perpetuating an older loyalty, or already anticipating a future developments. Again, it, it, it suggests that there's, there's some sort of coup being planned, and Yom is aware of it. So he sends his messages and says, Hey, surrender to me the god that you guys are obeying. It, it's a challenge. And then he, he adds, surrender the one whom you obey, and then the word tempest. Uh, it's interesting, it, Wyatt in this, at this point uh, he points out what the Ugaritic word is, it's H-M-L-T. And, he, and the, the Hebrew parallel is uh, hamula, storm, or you could understand this word as referring to Multitudes. Wyatt writes, the form HMLT appearing in KTU 1.1315 and parallels is still appropriately translated multitudes even though the etymology may be the same. It refers to a vast crowd. So that's probably the better way to take this. Like, you know, surrender to me the God whom you obey. The, the one whom you obey, you multitude. You know, in other words, you, you, you counsel, you multitude of, of supernatural beings here. Cough him up. Surrender him to me. This, this is a, a big confrontation. And then it, the, the bail cycle keeps going. Give up Baal and his retinue, the son of Dagon, whose gold I shall seize. The divine assistants depart. They do not delay. Then they set their faces towards the divine mountain, towards the convocation of the council. Uh, so again, this is, this is sort of a, a flashback. And then the the scene again transitions again to to where this this challenge is is going to be or is issued. Now the gods were sitting down to eat, the sons of the holy ones to die, and Baal stood by El. Lo, the gods saw them. They saw the messengers of Yom, the embassy of ruler Nahar. And the gods lowered their heads onto their knees, onto the thrones of their princeships, and Baal rebuked them. Why, O gods? Have you lowered your heads onto your knees and onto the thrones of your princeships? I see gods that the tablets of Yam's messengers, and they came with an official message of the embassy of ruler Nahar, are humiliating you. Lift up, Oh gods, your heads from on your knees, from the thrones of your princeships. And I shall answer the messengers of Yam, the embassy of ruler Nahar. So Baal accepts the challenge. And he tells the, the, the gods of the council, who are like cowering, like, oh, we're in trouble now because Yom knows what's going on, lift up your heads from, uh, you know, from your knees. Uh, the, as the cycle continues, again, the section continues, Yom messengers demand Baal, again, be turned over to him. And El says, okay, which really ticks Baal off. And he responds by attacking the messengers. And then you have a, a section that's missing, about 120 lines, and when 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 the text returns to what we actually have, Baal is actually fighting Yom himself, and he kills him, Okay, and he becomes king of the gods. So it would be, think about it. When Baal shows up, the gods lower their heads onto their knees. They cringe at Baal's rebuke. They're afraid. They basically put their heads between their knees. Okay, They put their heads onto the thrones of their princeships. They're, they're putting their heads between their knees. I mean, they're getting as, as tight and low as they possibly can. They're apparently afraid that they are undone. Yom is angry. They have been under Baal's lordship, not Yom's, and now they're in trouble. Now all that, of course, assumes Yom is the greater deity. They think Baal's going to get his clock cleaned and they're going to be in trouble. Baal tells them to knock it off or buck up. He commands that they lift up their heads and stop being fearful. He is large and in charge, again, like we would say, some of us would say anyway. So what's the point? Well, the language of the Baal cycle, where Baal becomes king of the gods, is repurposed by the psalmist in Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10, to declare the kingship of Yahweh. It has some subtle changes and applications. So let's read verses 7 through 10 again and be thinking about that scene in the Baal cycle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? It's Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, a couple items of interest. You know, rhetorically, who's the king of glory? Well, it ain't Baal. <laughs> it's not Baal. It's Yahweh. Again, if you, if you know the Baal story and you read this psalm or you hear it, you, you, your ear is going to catch you know, similarities and phrases. The difference, of course, is this lift up your heads, O gates, O everlasting doors, instead of lift up your heads, O gods. Why the change from gods to gates or doors? What does it signify? Well, it signifies a couple things. Again, I'll just for the sake of time, I'm going to limit the discussion here. It signifies there is no need to single out the members of Yahweh's council because they fear no other God. The context is different here. Okay, you don't have gods in Yahweh's council plotting to, you know, to, to side with some other deity. All right, so so that that is not in the picture. They don't fear any other any of their own membership. They are they fear the Lord. They fear Yahweh. Okay, they fear no other God as being more powerful than Yahweh. So the the threat element is not there. And second, recall that the context of verses 7 through 10, biblically, is the procession of the Ark of the Covenant, the throne or footstool, depending on what passage you're in, of Yahweh. Again, all that also, throne or footstool, depends on whether we're talking about tabernacle or temple. The gates and doors speak of the tabernacle or temple entrances. In biblical descriptions, there's no other deity In this localized, earthly, sacred space, you bring the ark in, there's no other deities in there. The ark is the throne or the footstool of one, one deity. That's Yahweh. Other gods, even other council members, are not in view there. There's no need to bring them into the scene because Yahweh is the only one who sits enthroned on Zion. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a theological and logical reason why the language has changed a bit, but it clearly draws on the Baal cycle. Verses 1 and 2 clearly drew on the Baal cycle. Again, the, 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 the combat element there, the challenge that, that's issued by Yom, also known as Nahar, to Baal, you know where Baal becomes king of the gods when he defeats Yom. And in verses 1 and 2, it's Yahweh who, who is over Yom. Yahweh's the one who is, is Lord of Riyadh you know, and, and Nahar. It's not Baal. Then you get to verses 7 to 10 where it's talking about kingship, and you have this lift up your head's language. Again, it, it's, that part is word for word you know, from the Baal cycle. So again, literate Israelites would have picked up on this, and this is the way they, they are able to be taught or learn or even picture in their minds correct theology. That's the point. That's why the writers do this. They are picking a fight. They are blackening the eye. They are rubbing the nose of Baal, you know, in something. It's, it's in this material. This is, this is a, a sideswipe, you know, a theological sideswipe. But it's easy for us to just read right over that stuff and think, well, that's kind of goofy talk, or, oh, that reminds me of Handel's Messiah. Well, good, but, you know, <laughs> there's still something else going on here. Now let's, again, quickly go to Psalm 29. Again, we're just illustrating these points. And by the way, I didn't insert anything into Psalm 24. The language is already there, and it, and it is parallel to language somewhere else in some other literature. I'm not saying, oh, there's holes in this psalm. Boy, it would be nice if there was a few lines of the bail cycle in here. Let's put those in. Okay? We're not doing that. And, I, and again, most of my audience is obviously going to know that. But again, just for the sake of making the comment, there it is. Let's read Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, again it's the divine name, and this is also as a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings, B'nai alim. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth, and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry, Glory! The Lord sits enthroned over the flood, the Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to his people, may the Lord bless his people with peace. At Psalm 29. Now by way of setup, I'm going to use Craigie again because he has some nice opening comments here and gets us into some things we we at least ought to mention. Psalm 29 is a hymn. The whole thing is a hymn. It contains three basic parts. One, the call to praise, verses 1 and 2, which is addressed to the sons of God. Two, the praise of the Lord's voice, verses 3 to 9, voice of the Lord mentioned many times there. Three, a concluding section describing the praise of the Lord in the temple, verses 10 and 11. Again, very easy to plot that out. What has drawn attention, of course, is Canaanite Ugaritic elements and Craigie comments. The Canaanite Ugaritic aspects of the of the psalm formed the basis of a hypothesis presented by Ginsburg in 1935, in which he proposed that Psalm 29 may originally, that's a key word, may originally have been a Phoenician hymn. Now, you know, Ginsburg's theory, I just want to say something about it, because this is the kind of thing that... You know, it's going to make internet theology headlines, you know, oh, Psalm 29, really, from Pho- Phoenician? Yeah, nice. Thanks for the clickbait. Um, Ginsburg's Phoenician orientation is due to the proximity of Phoenicia to the topographical references in verses 5 and 6, Lebanon, Syrian, okay? That's right, adjacent to Phoenician territory. Um you know, And he used that to argue that Psalm 29 was originally a Phoenician hymn modified by the psalmist for inclusion in the Psalter. Now Craigie and others, and Craigie's certainly not alone here, disputes that. It, it, it's really an overreach of the data. And I think Craigie's summary of the issue is fair. I'll read it to you, yeah, just a sentence or two. Craigie says, It is clear that there are sufficient parallels and similarities to require a Canaanite background to be taken into account in developing the interpretation of the psalm. But it is not clear that those parallels and similarities require one to posit a Canaanite Phoenician original of Psalm 29. That's unquote. And to me, that's entirely fair. I mean, just because there's similarities doesn't mean that there's a, a point of origin here. Why not argue that for Psalm 24? I mean, you know, Ginsburg didn't argue that for Psalm 24 and other Psalms. I mean, it's just, it overreaches the data, it overstates the case. But you may see it somewhere. So on to a few observations. Again, in verses 1 and 2, as Craigie pointed out, you have a call to worship. The sons of God are, are, the, are the ones that are being spoken to. The B'nai Elim, they are called to worship Yahweh. In effect, think about this. In effect, in verses 1 and 2, the congregation of Israelites who would be singing this psalm and worship okay, are calling upon the members of the Divine Council to join them in the praise of Yahweh. Okay. it's kind of kind of cool you know, it, you know as I point out in unseen realm this is one of those verses that again cl- shows very clearly the subservient status and the the subservient or the lesser ontology of the members of the divine Council compared to Yahweh Yahweh is an Elohim but no other Elohim is Yahweh. what makes Yahweh unique and and the, the faith of the Israelite writers, the biblical writers in the uniqueness of Yahweh, the one God among other gods is that is, you know, it has nothing to do with the term Elohim. What, it, what, what distinguishes him is the way that one Elohim is talked about and described elsewhere, that no other Elohim are. And this is one of those instances. You'll never have, and, and I, would, I would challenge anyone you know, to, to come up with some data that would suggest that a biblical writer would think that Yahweh ought to be worshipping some other deity. No, it, it's never the other way around. It's always, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, you bene elim, you sons of God in the council, you know, bow the knee. It's never the other way around. So, again, this is one example of, of having really a data-less position to argue that Yahweh was interchangeable with other gods in the council. That's actually what polytheism says. Um, you know, and, and even henotheism assumes that. Biblical writers did not think that way. There's, there's no data to suggest that they did. Now, Craigie, again, is going to you know sort of build off this and, and, and riff off this, and he's going to spent a lot of time talking about the voice of Yahweh in verses 3 to 9. But he says this, The background to this psalm is to be found in language associated with Baal and his holy voice. Okay. Baal, the Canaanite weather god, was associated with the storm, thunder, and lightning. Doesn't that sound like verse 3? The God of glory thunders. Doesn't that sound, you know, a little bit later? Let me read it to you again. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. And this, that's elsewhere. That's going to be regular, you know, regular language, regular description for lightning. Okay. Um, you know, so back to Craigie. Baal, the Canaanite weather god, was associated with storm, thunder, and lightning. He is portrayed in Ugaritic iconography with lightning as a weapon in his hand. In the Ugaritic text, his voice is explicitly identified with thunder. He's right, you know, he has a kid I reference there, you know, CTA 4.7, 29 31. But the psalmist, who rejects the possibility of any real power of Baal over weather or the outcome of battle, adapts the language of storm and integrates it with his description of God's glory, of Yahweh's glory. It's the end of the Craigie quote. So the praise in the psalm begins with an affirmation that the Lord's voice is upon the waters. Again, it, it's it's in the, the superior posture position, okay? You know, he's over the waters. At a primary level of interpretation, the words might be taken to imply the psalmist is describing a thunderstorm at sea, perhaps a storm approaching the land from that sea. Does that sound familiar? Again, if you've read, I, I think it's in Bible Unfiltered, my little my little essay for Bible Study Magazine about the ancient Israelite context of Jesus walking on the waters, calming the storm. You get the idea, okay? Again, at a primary level of interpretation, it might be a storm approaching, okay? But the undertones, this is, again, just I'm just trying to flesh this out a little bit. The undertones of the language go deeper, and again, reflect an adaptation of Canaanite or Ugaritic religious thought. In the Ugaritic text, Yom Sea, si is the god of the mighty waters. Again. Craigie is just sort of summarizing Craigie here. He gives another reference to the uh, Ugaritic tablets there. Yet the chaotic god, Yom, was conquered by Baal. An allusion to this mythological incident is already contained in the Song of the Sea, where the Lord is described as using sea, Yom, as a tool of conquest. In Psalm 29.3, the Lord is described not merely as a deity whose thunderous voice is heard, but as one victorious over the chaotic forces, symbolized by the many waters. The poetry amplifies the theme of the Lord as warrior. Again, that's also you know material from Craigie. That again, I'm just trying to summarize some of his thoughts because they're you know they're important. They they just sort of set the stage for something that I want to jump into now. We we read a little bit of the Bale cycle with Psalm 24. Let's read a little bit of the Bale cycle for this one. Again, okay, I think about the voice of Baal and again this this flashing lightning and you know all this kind of even this the cedar forest and the waters and the thunders and all that stuff, okay, this part of the Baal cycle is concerned with the fact that Baal doesn't have a temple of his own. And so he, there's this sort of, again, roughly speaking, there's sort of a campaign you know, uh, to get Baal his own temple. Baal wants his own house, you know, and he's not happy until he gets one. So, um, you know, some of the some of the members of the council go to bat for him. You know, they have to get approval from El to do this, so, but they they – they're on Baal's side. He, he needs a temple. He needs a house. So with that in mind, let me just read you a, a little bit again of the Baal cycle. Let a house be built for Baal like the gods, and a dwelling like the sons of Athirat. And the great lady who tramples Yom replied, <laughs> this is going to be, uh, I'm trying to remember if this is, uh, you know, I think it's Athirat that gets that title. The great lady who tramples Yom replied, you are great, O El. So she's beseeching El now to get permission to build this, this house for Baal. The grayness of your beard does indeed make you wise. You know, she's sucking up to him. The knowledge in your breast does indeed instruct you. And now the season of his rains may bale indeed a point. You know, B- B- bale is in charge of the rain, and we don't want to get him off schedule here. He's distracted by not having a house. So the season of his rains may bale indeed a point. The season of his storm chariot. And the sound of his voice from the clouds. There's the, the voice of Bale idea. His hurling to the earth of lightning flashes. A house of cedars let them build for him, and let them build him a house of bricks. Now Anat gets involved in the discussion. Virgin Anat rejoiced. She stamped her feet. She likes the idea. And the earth shook. Then she set her face towards Baal in the heights of Zaphon. Again, Zaphon in Ugritic is Zaphon in Hebrew, the north. A thousand miles away, ten thousand leagues off, virgin Anat laughed. She lifted up her voice and cried, Rejoice, Baal, good news I bring. A house will be given to you like your brothers, and a dwelling like your kinsmen. Okay? So she's happy. Okay? Now let's look at verses 3 through 9 again and in light of that scene. So you have, you know, again, I can't remember if it's, if it's Athirat or Anat in the earlier section. could be Uh Brings the request, you know, to L. butters him up a little bit. L's gonna gonna wind up saying, Yeah, go ahead, okay. Bail is gonna get his house, but you know, and she you know, Anat is thrilled with the news and she's gonna go back and, and tell Bale. And, and the way she describes him, like he's he's in the heights of Safon, the north. You know, we've got the description of his voice from the clouds, hurling to earth lightning flashes, the house of cedars and all this kind of stuff. She's thrilled. Now let's go to verses three through nine again in Psalm twenty nine. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. I mean He is Lord over Yom, over, over over the waters just generally. We don't have the necess- we don't have the word Yom here, but just waters generally and as things are going to pick up, at the end of Psalm 29, we're going to, we're going to see a reference to the flood, again, over, over the world. That's really what the waters are, and, it, and, and that denotes kingship over the entire world. So instead of Baal being king of the world, you know, because he's king of the gods, no, in verse 3, the voice of the Lord, the voice of Yahweh, is over the waters. That's where he lives. That's where he speaks from. The God of glory is the one who thunders, And it's a a direct borrowing of of the thunder language from Baal. The Lord is over the many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And these are clear allusions to Baal imagery, but it's Yahweh who is being described, not Baal. Verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Ouch. Yahweh is so powerful, he breaks the cedars, the stuff that Baal's house is made out of. In other words, Baal's house wouldn't last very long. Okay, it's vulnerable. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox. Now, can an Ugaritic Canaanite thinking, this is the far north, and this is where Baal lives. This is his turf. This is, this is his territory. Okay, Sirion is interesting especially because that's a clear allusion to Mount Hermon. The Hermon region in the northern area of Phoenician rule. Remember, Baal was the was the big dude in Phoenician religion. Remember Jezebel, okay, uh, Ahab and Jezebel worshiping Baal. She brings Baal worship Israel. Okay, Th- this is his turf, and it's like Yahweh's just his voice is all that, that's needed to just smash the place to bits. And Syrion is the name used for Mount Hermon by the people of Sidon, which is again you know, in the north there with, with the Phoenicians. In Deuteronomy three 9, I'll just read you a few references. It says, the Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites call it Sanir. Deuteronomy 4.48, from Arower, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is, Mount Hermon. So it's, it's very clear, you know, where, what this is being directed toward. And Sirion is really a specific point of reference, Hermon, this whole region you know, the, the, the forests of Lebanon and all that. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord, the voice of Yahweh, flashes forth flames of fire. It isn't Baal you know, who sends fire from heaven. Okay, It's the voice of Yahweh. It's not the voice of Baal. So the lightning doesn't come because Baal speaks. It comes because, you know, the Lord speaks. I mean, this these are his weapons, not Baal's. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The, vo- the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. You know, you, you actually could have a double reference here. With the fire, maybe being a reference to the burning bush in the Exodus. Again, Yahweh coming from the, the southern region, Kadesh. Here, uh, again, it, it could take you know the reader's mind back to that material as well. Verse nine: The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth, <laughs> and strips the forest bare. Now, somebody should make a meme out of that. Honestly, you know, at, at the shout of God, the deer just <laughs> drop their young. <laughs> And the forests are just stripped bare. Uh, I'd say cartoon. You know, we don't want to make it cartoonish, but uh, that would make a good meme. Verse ten: The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. So again, think of the, the cosmology. You've got this this dome, you know, over the earth. You got waters above. Again, reference to to, to Genesis one. You know, one, six, and seven separate the waters. The waters above, the hev- or the, or the you separate the, the waters above from the waters below by the firmament. The firmament is called heaven, the skies. So you have these waters above, and that's the domain of God, the domain of Yahweh. Um, you know, it isn't Baal who is above the waters, or who had subdued the waters, is in charge of this stuff. And and since the dome covers the entire earth. It covers all the nations. So who's king of the world? Well, if in Canaanite Ugaritic religion, it's Baal. In Psalm 29, it's like, oh, pardon us, but no. And Baal gets picked on through the whole psalm. And the conclusion is, it's Yahweh who sits enthroned over the flood. It's Yahweh who sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace, you know, shalom. Uh, again, the the whole psalm, you know, just just lifts this little things again out of the Canaanite Ugaritic context, specifically out of the Baal context, and burns Baal with them, you know, by doing so. Again, this this is how these things operate. Now, another little sidebar here. Uh, this is going to uh, again uh, address something that you know, sometimes I get email on I, or you know, some. Some point of contact here, uh, You'll, those of you who um, are going to be familiar with, with some of the things I'll refer to here will know why I'm bringing this up, and I'll try to explain it to those who, who to whom this might be new. But I'm going to cite a little bit or read a little bit from one of my articles, and the article is from the Bulletin of Biblical Research, the first one I did, uh, Volume 18, number one, 2008. It's called Monotheism, Polytheism, Monolatry, or Henotheism toward an assessment of divine plurality in the Hebrew Bible. Um, The idea that Yahweh is king over all the earth is, according to the critical consensus scholarly opinion, a late Israelite idea that emerged once the evolution to monotheism out of polytheism had taken place. Let me repeat that. I mean, there you know, there's the, the critical consensus says that Israelite religion, including the, the theology of the biblical writers, evolved from polytheism to monotheism. And when, and when they finally got the enlightened monotheistic view in their heads, then they had to they had to kill off the other gods because we don't believe they're real anymore. And they, they'll say that's what Psalm 82 is about. You, know, you kill off the gods and, and now you have Yahweh over all the nations and so Yahweh is king over the nations, and and they wouldn't be thinking about that unless they had evolved out of polytheism, and and you know we we want to date all this material late, even though there's really no way to do that. Basically, it's circular reasoning. Well, we're going to date this psalm late because we think the idea is late, therefore the psalm must be late. That's how it's done. Unfortunately, that's how critical consensus scholarship is done. And I you know I my dissertation at Wisconsin Madison. I specifically argued against this, that this is circular reasoning. It's, it's illogical. Because there's so much that comes after that takes the quote-unquote presumed polytheistic language that they supposed, supposedly got rid of and evolved away from. It shows up in lots of places later. Well, like, what happened? there Nobody got the memo, or, or what? In other words, this neat picture about evolution from polytheism to monotheism, that supposedly you know finally reached its its apex moment, you know either maybe during the exile or a little bit after the exile, because the exile had to beat the polytheism out of the out of the Jews and all that kind of stuff, you know that 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 you know from that point on we we are intolerant monotheists, you know we're we're never going back to this other gods crap, you know we're just not doing that. Well, why do you have 180 references to plural Elohim or Alem in the Dead Sea Scrolls? You know, a dozen or so, of which are clearly overtly in divine council context, that that that's supposed to be pre-exilic, primitive religion, primitive polytheism, and the Israel the biblical writers eventually you know broke through and they saw the light of monotheism. You know, honestly, I just think it's hokum. I mean, I, I, that might be a little harsh. I, I I think it's illogical. I think it implodes on itself. It does not conform to a lot of data. It it conforms only to selected data. You know, if you exclude some of the other stuff that gets in the way, well, then you have a nice picture. I don't think we should do that. Uh, But, you know, by way of a – why do you mention it? I mention this now because – you know, I've gotten a few emails like, you know, hey, have you have you listened to Pete Enz's podcast, you know, where he just had Mark Smith on, you know, and they're they're talking about this stuff. And Mark Smith is is the, the, the main voice and, and he's not a he's not an anti Christian guy. he's Mark is a Catholic. I've had several conversations with him. He's 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 really a nice guy. And I think he's a good good hearted guy too. Um, but he, he is the, the main spokesperson for the consensus view. And, and I just, I just don't buy it. And, and Mark knows that. I mean, we've, you know, we've been at the same conferences, I even read a paper where he sat in on, which was a lot of fun, because basically, we took the whole Q&A time to go back and forth, you know, over the whole thing. But, but and he's, he's just, he's just a nice guy about all that. This is what academics do. But, you know, when you have sort of, I think there's a propensity in some circles of evangelicalism to think that if critical scholars take a position, that's the only position that's coherent. That's the only position that makes sense because they're scholars and are scholars. You know, maybe have an ax to grind or maybe they're too confessional or so. Oh, they're afraid to go. No, this is a scholar that isn't afraid to go there. And, yeah, I could I could file this into the progressive revelation bucket like some evangelicals do. You know, God doesn't have to reveal everything about himself to all the biblical writers the same way at the same time. I get it. I could file it under progressive revelation say, okay, you know, some of the early biblical writers, maybe they were polytheists and then they, eventually they weren't. I don't because it just doesn't make any sense. The logic of it implodes. Let me give you one anecdote and maybe, you know, somebody who you know, heard that other podcast you know, will, will listen to this. I was in my last semester at the UW-Madison. Okay, we're in, a, in an Isaiah seminar, Second Isaiah was the title of it. And the Second Isaiah is supposed to be, again, this moment, this apex moment of the breakthrough to monotheism, okay? And so one day we had Peter Machinist in, who was the, the Hancock Professor of Oriental Languages at Harvard, and, and another just super guy, okay? Just just a, a really, really pleasant guy, really, really likable, and, of course, a, a top-notch scholar. And he is viewed as sort of the, the scholar for 2nd Isaiah. So he's in, in you know, teaching our, our grad seminar that day. And in between the, the two sessions, we're sitting around the table. And I was you know, mulling over a dissertation topic, and, and Peter Machinist asked, well, you know, where are you at in the program? And I told him, I've got to take prelims over, you know, in the summer in a few weeks, and then got to nail down the dissertation topic, and you know, so on and so forth. And, and I said, you know I have a question. Cause I, again, I had been thinking about what to do as a topic. I said, "You know, if there's this neat evolution from polytheism to monotheism that culminates in, in, the, in the time of Second Isaiah, why do we get so many references to divine plurality, plural elohim, plural aem, in divine council settings, that, that, that you know in other words, all the pre-exilic language, why does it show up so it's in later texts so frequently? And again, citing there, there's like 180 of these in the Dead Sea Scrolls alone. Why, why is that if we have this evolution? And he looked at me, and I'll be forever grateful for this. He looked at me and he said, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that was the moment for me. You know, and I, I'm just, I'm, I was blessed by his honesty, his candor and his honesty. That was the moment for me where I thought, okay, I got my topic. It doesn't make any sense to me. And let's go back to Psalm 24. I'm going to give you another reason why it doesn't make any sense from this psalm. Now, again, you have this idea of this trajectory, this evolutionary trajectory, and the the idea that Yahweh is king of all the nations, which means he has to get rid of all the other gods because the gods are over the nations, Deuteronomy 32 and all that stuff. We've got to get rid of those guys so that Yahweh can be the only god over all the nations. That's a late idea. They had to evolve toward that. After you know during or after the exile. That's that's what we're told. Okay, well, Psalm twenty nine is by everybody's account pre exilic. In fact, Psalm twenty four, Psalm twenty nine, and Exodus fifteen are among the earliest Hebrew Bible material according to the you know consensus critical scholars, and, and you know most of these guys, not all of them, are gonna be non confessional. They don't they don't take any sort of theology position at all. So what do we have at the end of Psalm twenty nine? You know, how is it that we're saying that before the exile, Yahweh wasn't king over the nations? <laughs> because that's what Psalm 29 <laughs> says. Psalm 29 is part of this. I'm going to read you uh the bottom of page 3 and some of page 4 of my BBR article. I'm going to just read this section. I'm talking about Psalm 82 in the context. So concerning the idea that polytheism is being re- used rhetorically in Psalm 82, that, you know, we're, we're killing off the gods here. Much is made of the last verse in that psalm, where God is asked to rise up and possess the nations, Psalm eighty-two, eight. This is interpreted as a new idea of the psalmist, to encourage the exilic community that despite exile, Yahweh will rise up and take the nations as his own, having sentenced the other gods to death. Okay, so, so this is a new idea. This view... Ignores pre-exilic texts, such as Psalm 24 and 29, long recognized as some of the most ancient material in the canon. For example, Psalm 29.1 contains plural imperatives directed at the B'nai Elim, pointing to a divine council context. Verse 10 declares, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. In Israelite cosmology, the flood upon which yahweh sat was situated over the solid dome that covered the round flat earth since it cannot coherently be asserted that the author would assert that gentile nations were not under the dome and the flood this verse reflects the idea of world kingship the song of moses also among the oldest poetry in the hebrew bible echoes the thought the same thought in exodus 15:18 the text reads the lord will reign forever and ever as Frank Moore Cross noted over 30 years ago, and Cross was the guy that, that Machinist replaced at Harvard, Cross wrote, quote, The kingship of the gods is a common theme in early Mesopotamian and Canaanite epics. The common scholarly position that the concept of Yahweh reigning or as king is a relatively late development in Israelite thought seems untenable, Unquote. And I would agree. I would absolutely agree. So the point is, in Israelite cosmology, the flood waters above the earth, the waters above the firmament, in Genesis 1, 6 through 8, language there, and those waters that presumed, you know, the a dome covering the entire earth, not just Israel, but the entire earth, okay, that framework means that we have here in Psalm 29 a claim to world kingship over the nations. And, of course, that means over their gods. You know, it, again... <laughs> The, the evolutionary arc narrative, you know, the ARC, the, the, the evolutionary arc from polytheism to monotheism and lumping the biblical writers in there, to me, just does not account for a number of data points, which is why I, I, I just don't buy it. I just don't buy it. And and some people who correspond with me are disturbed, you know, by, by the... Well, we have an evangelical saying about, talking about this evolution. Yeah. yeah, they're going to talk about it because that's the consensus view. And to be honest with you, I really don't think they've spent much time looking at the data uh-huh. that don't conform to it and that really undermine the evolutionary trajectory. Again, I could put this in the in the progressive revelation bucket. That's easy. But I don't because it just doesn't make sense so i wanted to throw that in as a sidebar again we're we're wrapping up here so these two psalms again i think have have value not necessarily for getting us into the sidebar talk although i'm sure somebody out there in the audience is going to find that useful or interesting Um, psalm 24 psalm 29 these are good examples of if you're aware again of the Canaanite ugritic material you can get a lot more out of these psalms, and again, these aren't unique. There's there's a lot of other stuff, obviously, in the Hebrew Bible like this and the Psalter itself. But I wanted to have a place where I could at least sort of try to illustrate this. And again, the main import of, of this episode is not so that your your head can be into debates between scholars, you know, because that, that's what scholars do. You know, they, they go back and forth with each other, you know, arguing this to that point. That's just part of the enterprise, you know, and 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 all the people that I've mentioned here. Are, are, are good people. You know, there, there's nobody in the bunch here that is just, you know, grinding an axe against, you know, the Christian faith or something like that. They're, they're, you know, there's nobody like that in, in, in this list. Again, the, the people that I've mentioned, it's just that there's honest disagreement you know, among scholars. But I wanted to have a place where at least you know why. Uh, again, this is one evangelical who is not afraid of this material. I love it. Again, this, this, is, this is where where I spent my time in my dissertation, and again, to my advisor's credit, um, uh, he he rolled with it. He he allowed me to do it. He allowed me to challenge uh, the consensus view. And uh, I, I think he would he would admit that you know hey you know it, it probably needs this probably needs some challenge. You know, I I don't know if I want him over. Um, probably not. Again, he's he's going to be part of the mainstream. But to his credit, you know he, he let me do this. So peer-reviewed scholarship, you know this this sort of thing, and dis- at the dissertation level, at the publication level, yeah they. You know, there's no monolithic belief system that everybody has to conform to. That's not what scholars do. And so this, you know, it's a good exchange. It's a friendly exchange. I like everybody in the mix here, you know, that, I, that I've met. So let's be clear on that. I, I'm not going to be, you know, you're not going to be able to caricature me as being, you know, like antagonistic toward anybody. I like them all. They, I enjoy them. Everybody that I've that I've included in the discussion here. But I wanted a place where I could at least talk a little bit about why I don't buy this stuff and also the value of, again, these ancient contexts for these two psalms,
2: and of course, by extension, lots of other passages too. Yeah, Mike, one of your biggest uh, criticism, probably from other people, is that you're, they think that you're saying you need external resources to understand the Bible. And it's, it's ridiculous how they have this argument that um, without all this extra literature, you can't understand the Bible. and That's not really what you're saying. No, no. I mean, you you can get the core ideas
0: out of Scripture just reading an English Bible. Okay, You you can't have a firm grasp of a lot of things without situating the Bible in its own context. So, you know, the Bible did not just drop from heaven, Okay, as though it has no context at all, like it just materialized. Uh, God used people. He used people at a certain time, a certain place, a certain worldview, a certain culture. These are God's decisions. So if you don't like the external context being part of the interpretive process, go complain
2: to God, okay, because these were his decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I I find it, it enhances my faith. You know, all this extra oh, material, too. it enhances it. So, it's funny when I get people uh, who've been in seminary or something, some of my friends, and they've asked me uh, since diving into this material stuff, what has it done to your faith, faith and stuff? Because we all heard the stories that students yeah. enter seminary, and they kind of lose their faith, or they get discouraged. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is only enhanced it. So I question people's faith going into it if they if all of this extra material starts to break down their faith. I'm like, this adds to it. Yeah. The, The the real I think the real
0: the underlying problem to that is they go to seminary with certain views of certain things. Let's just say for the sake of the discussion, how we got the Bible like how how the how the thing we call the bible was produced they've they've been taught so minimally about that topic that when their professors start bringing in you know, other data or asking, you know, important questions like, okay, like the superscriptions and the Psalms, the the whole idea of editing, or maybe it doesn't mean to David or or, or of David, maybe it means for, that whole thing. They have never heard any of that before. And so they don't really know what to do with it. And some of that is going to feel so counter to the way they have been thinking about the topic to that point that they're going to feel tension, and what you need, and, and unfortunately, what's lacking in, in a number of instances, you need a professor sensitive to that, who can you know, who can think through how this stuff makes sense, and 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 actually works with the theology that they already came with. In other words, just just just. You have the same theology, but but let, let's just change how that theology is talked about. Okay, how we, how we talk about how we got the Bible and God's role and God's responsibility and stuff like this. I mean, this material should not squeeze God out of the equation. It should actually help us sort of think better about how God did things. But, you know, you, you need a professor who's capable of that. You need a professor who's willing to do that. Um, who, who will who will take ten or fifteen minutes of a class to do that rather than making sure they cover you know pages three three through eight in their syllabus you know it, there's a disconnect there that I think is really unfortunate and and it, some students might end up in a hostile context where the professor loves to trouble his or her students again that that happens you know I, I know people like that all right that that happens so I understand students coming away with their their faith is harmed and it, there's a number of reasons why that might happen but my point is that that is not a necessary result or at least it shouldn't be none of this stuff has made me like oh boy you know is any of this you know to, to me it just makes things a lot more exciting because it's going to sound i don't know how this is going to sound one of the best tools for biblical scholars and, and theologians is to have a little bit of imagination Okay another what I mean by that is not so that you can add stuff to scripture but so that you can you can take it apart and put it back together again you can reimagine how God would have done this how how in God's interaction with human beings how he could have used them to make this thing come to pass but some people just can't do it they they their faith is a series of propositions a series of sentences a, a very strict This is the way we talk about this topic. And when they are unable to talk about the topic that same way again, they have nothing to substitute for it. And it it creates tension and and distrust and all these other things, which is really unfortunate. It just doesn't have to be that way.
2: Well, hopefully they listen to the Naked Bible Podcast to help. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if if, really, if they did, they would get some of that. And I I think it would help. All right, Mike. Another good uh, episode. Uh, again, listeners, uh, be on the, uh, the lookout for updates for this week in Denver if we will or if not have that live Q&A Friday. Again, Mike. the podcast Dr. approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 240, Colossians q and I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's a scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, how you doing this week? Pretty good. Do we want to talk about our uh, epic fantasy face-off in our football league or not? Yeah, no, we can't. Hey, I, I, I was competitive. I made it. I lost by five <laughs> points. And if I would have started, my normal people, rather than trying to make a big move, I would have won. But I didn't do that. You know, I swung for the fences. I picked up some new guys. I tried to do something big. It didn't pan out. It backfired, but hey, I came five points yeah. short. At least I made well, him sweat is, a little bit. This is Maury's greatness right here
0: because I had bye week troubles, and he just he put on his uh, draft wizard
2: hat, and I was able to to fill the gaps. Yeah, no, you're crushing it. You're, That's what great teams do. You're 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 leading it. You're number one in the league, and I think you've only lost one game, so you're like eight and one uh, or seven and one I'm or seven and one. Yeah, I. I
0: it makes me wonder now how in the world i lost that other game I just i must have i must have like you know
2: done something where, while morrie was asleep you know and i didn't have his supervision you're crushing it it's uh it's it's uh not fun for us guys here on the bottom who are just trying to uh, find a way to get into the playoffs so uh, it's, 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 it's it's amazing how fast the time goes it's almost over it's already halfway through it's, it's like, like halfway through it's already yeah. november uh, where does the time but, go I'll
0: take it, you know, because my other leagues, man, I, I can't buy a win. It's just, you know, it's, I'm struggling to stay at 500 and a couple and a couple I'm, I'm, I'm underneath. It just, it's such a weird, weird season, you know, but there you go. The pugnacious
2: pugs have Patrick Mahomes, so <laughs> it smells a lot of problems. Who went to my college, so since he's doing so good, I just pretend like I'm doing good because he's my college quarterback, so go Red Raiders. Well, He's the real deal. So it it's awesome. It's awesome. All right, Mike. Well, I want to remind everybody that uh, we're going to be in Denver uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, November 16th, I believe is that Friday at 7. PM in the upper room at the, it's community, the comu- yeah, community church. Yeah. Yeah. The Denver community church. Uh, so please it's free to the public open to everybody. We hope you'll join us at 7. PM there in the upper room and bring your questions and, Hopefully we'll have a good time. Yeah, well, we usually have a good time at those things, so I would expect no less. Sounds good. All right, Mike. Well, uh, we've got a handful of questions here specifically about the book of Colossians. So I'm ready, Mike, if you are. Yep, let's jump in. All right, our first one is from Leon. I was raised a Trinitarian, and I am still one, but I find some difficulties in the New Testament concerning the Holy Spirit. Often or almost every time Paul greets a church, it is with the phrase, Grace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, without mention of the Holy Ghost. Colossians 2, two describes the mystery of the gospel as the Father and Son's plan. Again, no mention of the Holy Ghost. In Revelation, we see this amazing throne room scene, but again, very little of the Holy Ghost. So what are we to make of this as trinitarians why is there a perceived lack of acknowledgement of the third figure of the trinity you know i think the key word
0: there is perceived and i and i would say it's it's a misperception you know generally this the angle of the question feels like a hermeneutic of exclusion an interpretive approach that is fixated on exclusion in other words the idea that if something isn't mentioned everywhere, or even mentioned in a preponderance of places with specific phrasing, that it has no role, and, and I think that's flawed. Uh, I, I would say, you know, if if you actually look at Colossians two two, it doesn't seem to really say what I think is lurking in the, in, in the mind of the of the uh, questioner. Mind of Leon. So let me just read that. I'll read the first two verses in Colossians 2 here. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ. Well God's mystery isn't the Holy Spirit it's Christ because Christ's work on the cross is the thing that unites Jew and Gentile because he is the promised seed you know mentioned in Genesis 12:3 and other places after God divorced the nations that it was through Abraham's seed one particular seed of course where this situation would be reversed and the seed there has to be physical so it has to be Christ so it really has nothing to do with the holy spirit anyway in that sense in that verse so i think i think we're sort of overreading or maybe underreading Uh, Colossians 2.2, again, with this sort of hermeneutic of exclusion. Again, Christ is the mystery, the means by which salvation would be provided. And and so the wording makes sense in terms of what what the subject matter is. Secondly, I would say the Spirit is included along with Jesus in statements about the gospel elsewhere. How can we possibly conclude that the Holy Spirit isn't part of the gospel, the whole, you know, the plan? In passages, in a number of passages. Let me just give you a few examples. I'll give you some examples from Paul, since you know Paul's the author of Colossians. So there's actually a number of these that we could look at. But Romans one four, uh, that you know the Son or Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. When I mean, you have verses like that 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 link the Spirit to the resurrection, which is the key. To the plan's fulfillment, so how in the world can we say the Spirit isn't isn't an equal partner in all this? You know Romans eight two for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Again, it's the Spirit who baptizes people into the body of Christ, and the, and inclusion in the body of Christ is where you get your, you know your assurance of salvation. Okay, it again it's it's indispensable. You have Christ's body, but well, well, again, who who's the mechanism by which you know individuals, believers, are joined to that body, united to Christ, to use another Pauline phrase? What's the Spirit? You know, Romans eight nine. You however were not in the fle- are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Again, just that whole mechanism about the body of Christ. The Spirit, in these passages, is absolutely indispensable. It, you know, the Spirit is required you know, for, for this these things to be true. Romans fifteen sixteen, uh, that Paul was called to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Again, there you have that, that, that link. So in, in this case, you even do have the Spirit brought into the discussion of this union of Jew and Gentile. So the Spirit doesn't get you know, excluded. He might get excluded in some places where Paul's talking about Christ as the mystery, and the mystery itself, again, is this inclusion. But here we have the Spirit you know, as the one who brings it all together, you know, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I'll just you know, do some rapid fire here. First Corinthians 6.11, uh, Paul mentions of, uh, several sins in the preceding verses, and he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. Of our God, I mean, if that isn't, you know, just, just look at look at the the way these these things are juxtaposed. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus and, and the Spirit again, they're set side by side there. Now God isn't there, you know. If, if we're operating by again a hermeneutic of exclusion, you know, is God out of the picture now? No. It, you, you, there's no requirement that all three persons be mentioned in passages that relate in some way, where, where there's, there's a doctrinal item, in this case, the mystery, the gospel. There's no requirement that all three persons need to be mentioned in passages that discuss that thing. I mean, there's no rule for that. And so to observe where the Spirit is not included in some of these and conclude, well, I guess he's not equal, that, again, that, that's just a flawed approach, uh, even though I can see how you know, people could be steered you know, in, in that direction by someone who sort of wants them to focus on the exclusion. Uh, let me try to find another one here. Uh, you know, the grace of the Lord Jesus. This is Second uh, Corinthians thirteen fourteen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Well, there they're all free in there. You know, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Galatians three fourteen. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And again, there's that mystery thing from Colossians. So that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And linking the Spirit into the mystery there, even though the Spirit isn't mentioned in Colossians two two, He's brought into the equation in other passages. I, I think you get the point uh, at, at this point. You know, it. You know, who gives us everlasting life? Is it Jesus or is is it the Spirit? You know, now, now we might be inclined to think of John three sixteen. Oh, it's Jesus. It's the work of Jesus. Jesus. I'm like, well, the Holy Spirit is actually talked about that way in certain passages. Second Corinthians three six. Uh, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Galatians 6.8, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Ephesians 2.18, for through him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. And you know, through him, so there you have, there you have in Ephesians two eighteen through Him Jesus then you have the Spirit then you have the Father you know so uh, again this is this is just something I think for the general listener here to be wary of don't let people steer you in a certain direction through the hermeneutic of exclusion it, it, it's tactically not kosher if I can put it that way because there is no rule that says all three persons have to be listed in every passage that talks about a subject that. All three persons have something to do with, you you might get all three of them there, maybe the preponderance of the verses you don't, but if you get two out of three in all the other ones, and and it's very evident that all three have a role to play in the same thing, well that tells you something too. It tells you that all three are at the same level, it tells you all three are indispensable, it tells you all three, you you, you pull one out and it's not going to work. You need all three, and so Again, the way we think about Godhead, I think we need to be careful in our in our methodology. And the last thing I would say here is the very idea of the new covenant. I mean, think about this. Think of the whole question from this angle. The very idea of the new covenant, which Jesus said his body and blood are the guarantors of, unites Christ and the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit was part of the prophesied new covenant in the Old Testament passages in Ezekiel and Jeremiah specifically mentioned the spirit in connection with the new covenant. And there's Jesus in the upper room saying, this is the, the blood, my body and blood of the new covenant. Okay. You know, it, <laughs> the spirit belongs there. The spirit is an equal partner. Um, again, so we, we need to be careful
2: about our method here. Heath has our next question and he asks, The New World Translation Bible of Jehovah's Witnesses puts the word other in Colossians 1. By him all other things were created. He is before all other things. Some (laughs) Jehovah's Witness apologists defend this by saying lots of English Bible translations insert other in various places where it doesn't appear in the original Greek. How would Mike respond to that?
0: Except for that one. (laughs) Well, I I would... Here's how I would respond to it. I would say it's silly. Uh, again, you know, the, the, I, I think this is Colossians one sixteen that the phrasing is drawn from. If you're going to do this in Colossians one sixteen, it's purely, it's contrived. It's a purely contrived theological insertion by the Jehovah's Witnesses. There's nothing in the Greek text to justify inserting the word other, and you know. <laughs> You know, we know the drill. The Jehovah's Witnesses just do this sort of thing because they can't win the argument with exegesis of the text that actually is there. Oh. So now we have to we have to insert words in you know that aren't there so that we can win our argument. Again, that that's a little thing I like to call cheating. But this is what they do. They just move the goalposts when they need to. They cheat. You now I think that the shoe would it would be interesting to have the shoe on the other foot. It would be this would be like. Anti-Jehovah's Witnesses inserting or deleting things in verses to make them look even worse. How about inserting the word God, capital G O D, every time the name Jesus appears, just because the two are juxtaposed in certain verses? Certain verses we get God, capital G, and Jesus. Well, why don't we just put God everywhere where the name Jesus, you know? See, Jesus is God. Look at that. It, it belongs here because it, it shows up in some other verse. Again, it's ridiculous. It's silly. I'll bet the Jehovah's Witnesses would cry foul if we did that. Well, again, if they're going to cry foul there, then they need to stop just, just putting words in passages to try to make their theology.
2: You know, it, it's cheating because they can't win the argument on exegesis. Marissa from Slovenia has two questions, and the first one is, yeah. I have a question about the passage about the Colossian heresy, Colossians 2.8. I've read some commentaries on the Storkeia. Did the proto-Gnostics and or some Kabbalistic sects employ the elements of water, fire, earth, air, literally as some kind of tools in their ceremonies? Or was it rather invoking the entities that were supposed to rule these elements by some spiritual bribes or passwords? Is there a connection to the passage in Matthew 12 where the Pharisees accused Jesus of using the power of Beelzebub?
0: Yeah, I mean Jesus never used. Uh, we, we actually covered this when we did an episode on—I can't remember what the number was. We did an episode episode on exorcism uh, as part of the Messianic mosaic. Um, yeah, I can't remember what what number it was, but we, we we have had discussions both in that episode and I think maybe one other Q and A about Jesus and uh, you know exorcism, or maybe I'm thinking about part of my my demons book. At, at any rate what's interesting about Jesus with exorcism let's just start there is that there were exorcists in the Jewish tradition in in antiquity you know the, the, the Kabbalah stuff is so much later you know I, I don't I really don't even think we need to care about what somebody's saying about the Bible a thousand years after the biblical period because they're just making stuff up in mm-hmm. Kabbalah it's just you know mystical stuff but but there were exorcists <laughs> in the first century and you know you They've, they left writings, they left, you know, different incantations on different objects and whatnot. I mean, this is a whole, like, subdiscipline of biblical scholarship. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't, let me back up and say it this way, all of those, the, their incantations and such within the Jewish community when it came to exorcism, and you can apply this to the Christian tradition too, they all have some appeal to a higher authority to cast out a demon. Jesus never does that. And again, scholars have noticed this. He doesn't use formulaic phrases. He, he, does, he doesn't do the kind of things that that his contemporary uh, exorcists, you know, even even those within his own community do. He doesn't appeal to a higher authority because he doesn't need one. Okay, he is the authority over demons, and this is this is something that just sort of stands out, uh, you know, within the whole context of exorcisms in the gospel. So. You know, they're going to accuse him by you know, using the power of Beelzebub because they know he's not doing it in their name or with their consent or with their approval, and he's also not doing it the way they do it, and they don't want to believe that he actually is the higher power to which they have to appeal. So what's left? Well you know we we're, we're just going to say he's appealing to some entity that's more powerful than the demons, and the only candidate you really got for that is beelzebub, okay you know, the Satan figure mm-hmm. so you know there, there's a certain logic to why they say this, and it 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 can be kind of comical if, again, if you really sort of know the backdrop of this and it it's it, it you know it's pretty poignant in terms of its theology that that here's the one standing before them that, that needs no higher authority, and in fact. Is equal to the authority that they appeal to, and they just don't—they don't realize it or they're unwilling to accept it. Now, the earlier part of the question about the Stoicheia, you know, it is true. When we talked about the Stoicheia, you know, one of the, the, the one of the contexts in which that term is used is to refer to water, fire, earth—you know, the, the fundamental elements you know, of the universe as, as they were conceived, you know, back back in the first century. So, we we, we can't necessarily conflate. That understanding of stoicheia, the fundamental elements, with the stoicheia who are spirit beings, even though you know there are texts that do have them overlapping, you know, to some extent, because of the very ancient idea that the, for instance, the elements of weather, okay, uh, you know, were controlled by either by God or some other you know entity or something like that. So there was this cosmic battle going on behind things that people experienced uh, meteorologically or just in terms of you know, natural catastrophe that sort of thing. So uh, again, it it's conceivable that they could have done this. I mean, I don't I'm not a student of Gnostic ritual, so I don't have I'm not aware of any specific examples. However, I am aware that the Manichaean sect, who if you know something about the Manichaeans, that it's an early Jewish mystical sect, you know, they they actually did part of this. You, you can find these sorts of things in their know, ritual language and their, their, their ceremony. And of course the Greek mystery religions, they, they did use these elements and they do, you can find them as part of uh, again, ceremonial statements or phrases, rituals, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so there's a verbal element and then there's a physical element as well. They would use fire and water and whatnot. So when it comes to those two things, yeah, I mean, you can, you can find examples there. I don't know specifically about the Gnostics though. Um, Gnosticism again tends to be this sort of amalgamation of you know, streams that, that, that flow into you know what would become known as Gnosticism. So I wouldn't be surprised. I just don't know any any specifics. This is actually sort of a good thesis question. Uh, if if Marissa was a graduate student, I'd say, oh, that's a good idea. You know, just you know, do a survey of the literature and tell me if you find anything. And if you do, that's your thesis. You know, so
2: that that's the best I can do with that one. All right, Marissa also wants to know. Uh, that Mike mentioned Egyptian Hermeticism as one of the sources of the Proto-Kabbala. Is there a historical proof that the Hermetic texts influenced later Zoroastrian doctrines and practices, or did they both evolve from a common root? (sighs) Yeah, it's really, it's kind of difficult.
0: On one hand, let's just start with Egyptian Hermeticism. Okay, we have to realize that what we think of as Egyptian hermeticism was produced in the Hellenistic era, the Greek era, because it's in Greek. We don't have Egyptian texts that refer to themselves as, you know, in this way. You know, Egyptian hermeticism, again, produced in the Hellenistic era, was, was allegedly, it's presented as the teachings of the god Thoth. You know, well, it, it sure, it, it would... Be kind of nice if we had sort of an Egyptian original that could actually validate that idea, but we don't. Again, th- this material is is Hellenistic in origin. Now, since that's the case, the Hellenistic Empire was one that preceded. Um, well, how do how do I want to put this? You know, you've you've got your. If you think in the flow of biblical history, okay, you, you've you've got your. Your Persian, you, know, you get your Babylonian Empire, you get your Persian Empire, then you get the Greek Empire, then you get the Romans. Okay, so yes, Hellenism you know preceded the New Testament era again the Gnostic era you know by several centuries. We get that. Zoroastrianism though was a was a precursor okay, to this. So Zoroastrianism would actually be something around before, technically, you know the the Egyptian Hermeticism again that is actually Greek now they are pretty close though so it would not be a surprise at all if you know there there was some cross fertilization here and and this is this is typical of the of hellenistic culture they when alexander spread his empire over the ancient world he he didn't like root out all pre-existing religion and all that kind of stuff and just dump it throw it away and ban it he doesn't do that he does focus on syncretism okay he 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 wants to Hellenize what's there, not eliminate what's there and replace it, you know, with, with only Greek thinking. But he wants to sort of, uh, again, baptize it, if I can use that that catchphrase. Uh, he he wants to inject, you know, Hellenistic thinking into that and marry the two, then come out with somebody who is positively predisposed toward him and his empire and and, and Greek culture. So you're you're, you're naturally going to have. Some relationship here between them, but but chronologically again, technically speaking, um, if we're talking about this thing we know as Hermes Trismegistus, you know, and all that, all that sort of stuff, the, the Greek title of the Egyptian god Thoth. Again, this that's Greek in origin, so it would actually come after Zoroastrianism, you know. In, in most of the tractates, I think I have a little. Let me just look up something really quick here. In um, little entry on Hermes Trismegistus. This is from Barrett's New Testament background, uh, C.K. Barrett. This is the late 1980s, 1987. He writes, Hermes Trismegistus, the thrice great Hermes, is the Greek title of the Egyptian god Thoth. Trismegistus probably represents an Egyptian expression meaning very great and served to distinguish the foreign god from the native Greek Hermes. In most of the tractates, Hermes himself or a similar divine figure communicates secret knowledge, gnosis, about God, creation, or about salvation. Again, gnosis is a Greek term. Uh, He communicates certain ideas about those things to a disciple who is sometimes but not always named. The revelation is generally given in the form of a dialogue in which the disciples' share is limited to asking questions and expressing admiration the date of the hermetic writings cannot be established with certainty but it seems probable that most of them are composed between AD 100 and 200 that's a little you're still in the in you're still in the throes of the hellenistic world even though the romans are in power you know you the world speaks greek again you know, the old the old thing why was the new testament written in greek because everybody spoke greek you know and greek culture has spread everywhere so you're still basking if, if i can use a positive term like that you're still basking in greek thought in these eras. So this is definitely after the Persian period, you know, so first century, second century, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, You know, you, we have to just keep this in mind with respect to this question. But again, since Alexander had a policy of syncretism, marrying things together rather than their, than their eradication, this is certainly, uh, it's certainly possible that you're going to find similar streams or similar threads in both, corpuses, the Zoroastrian literature, and then you know the, the Greek literature, the, of the
2: Hermes Trismegistus. Justin has a question about Colossians 2.16. Torah observant Christians say evangelical Christians interpret this verse wrong, and that Paul was really saying the reverse. The Colossians had started to observe the Feast of Yahweh and were being judged for doing so. Is this interpretation possible? You know, I, I'm, I'm not
0: completely sure what what the question is angling for. So it, is the idea of the question that Jewish believers were criticizing Gentiles for not doing Jewish things, or is the idea that Gentile believers were criticizing some among their own number for doing Jewish things? It, it, that That seems to be the last one there. The second one seems to be... Where this is going, but I'm, I'm not quite sure. Uh, in either case, though, I would say that Paul's statement in the very next verse, okay, sort of answers this question. Now, so two sixteen says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Uh, again, and then I'm going to assume that that this, that the question is, the Torah observant Christians are saying, well. You know, the, these these Christians at Colossae were starting to do Jewish stuff and then getting criticized from people within their own community or or maybe even Jews. I mean, it, it, it's hard to believe that Jewish believers would criticize them for doing this because that would sort of be kind of what they want or they might feel good about it. They, hey, they're becoming more like us. So it, it seems to me that maybe what the question is angling for is you have Gentiles criticizing other Gentiles for doing Jew, doing Jewish things. Regardless of that, like I said, the next verse to me answers the question, here's the next verse. These, again, these questions of food and drink, festival, new moon or Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Uh, Again, the law is not the reality of our right standing with God. Christ is. He is the substance. When we went through Colossians, we camped a little bit on this term, the great term, you know, translated substance here in the ESV, and we talked about how it, it's a term that is used to represent that which is real, you know, the, the reality. So the reality of our of our right standing with God that Paul has been talking about in you know earlier in the passage, you know, being rooted and built up in Him. It's not being rooted and built up in the law. Okay, the reality of our right standing with God is Christ. It is not the Torah. It is not the law. If a follower of Jesus wants to be Torah observant, fine. Okay, you know, it, it, if if he doesn't want to be Torah observant, fine. It, it, you know, this is I, th- I think the point. But even if you say that they were being Unfairly criticize these Gentiles for doing Jewish things. I mean, that the Torah observant Christians that are probably sort of in the background of this question, you know, want people to follow the law. You know, fine if if you have a Messianic congregation and you want to observe the Jewish calendar and you want to observe Sabbath, you want to teach, you know, for whatever reason that you should do this or that food and drink. Okay, so long as it doesn't topple the gospel, so long that it doesn't replace the gospel, because these things are a shadow of things to come. They're a a dim glimpse, but the reality, the reality is Christ. Again, Paul is explicitly clear here. These things do not replace the gospel. The gospel does not depend on them. The gospel didn't get to be the gospel through the assistance of the law and its rules, okay. I don't know how else to, to say it. You know, if, if Torah-observing Christians use scripture to convince Gentiles they should be Torah-observant in terms of salvation, then they are suggesting that Christ is insufficient. Okay? And, and again, that, that's clearly not a biblical you know, New Testament teaching. Why convince someone of the shadow when they already possess the substance? So this is, as Paul makes it, I think, an issue of preference and nothing more. So don't get anyone let anyone pass judgment on you, either for not doing it or for doing it. Because these things are a shadow. Christ is the substance. Anyone who makes you know the Torah more than Christ, or flips this around that the Torah is the substance and Christ is the shadow, is just acting on some inner proclivity, you know, inner impulse to want salvation to be linked to their performance. Or personal practice I mean let, let's just be honest about it they have some sort of guilty conscience or some sort of some sort of internal need to want to be congratulated in some way that they contributed something through their own works to their salvation okay that is that is contrary to New Testament teaching about the nature of the gospel.
2: Christopher has always heard in sermons that the primary reason that Paul used a scribe while writing his letters to the churches was due to poor vision, possibly even through not necessarily connected to the thorn in the flesh referred to Second Corinthians 12:7. Is it possible that the reason that Paul emphasized that he wrote in his own hand in Colossians 4:18 is due to having cataracts or similarly poor eyesight, which made it difficult or clumsy for him to write himself? As opposed to using a scribe, particularly in light of his writing, of his writing being referred to as large in Galatians six eleven.
0: Yeah, and, and the large reference there may just refer to Paul's use of capital letters, not necessarily size. You know, it, again, is it possible that, that this is a poor vision thing? Sure, it, it's possible. You know, but there's no evidence for it. I mean, that that's just being honest. I mean, it's a speculation. It's all it is. Uh, there's nothing that rules it out. There's nothing that, you know, really suggests it either. Uh, again, it's, it's pure speculation. You know, in, in our last episode on Colossians, and I mentioned an article on this phenomena, you know, literacy and using, you know, scribes that, that got into this whole thing about writing, you know, being able to, to write and not just read uh, or speak a language You know, that, that wasn't your first language. Uh, in the ancient world. So I I would recommend that. That article is accessible to my newsletter subscribers. Again, the bigness of letters may have been to emphasize Paul's ability to write. It may have just been the use of unsealed letters. And these are all speculations as to why that particular comment is made. So, you know, is it plausible? You know, uh, there are lots of other reasons, again, offered in that article that, yes, that are, that are also speculation, because Paul doesn't actually tell us, neither does any other verse, but that are certainly workable and make sense. So, you know, I, I don't think I could bring myself to say this is implausible. Uh, I, I would say it's probably less plausible than some of the other options. But if people are interested in this, again, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can go in and get... Uh, Get that article I don't remember the author uh, right off the top of my head but you can listen to the episode on Colossians 4 where I give the title uh, but if you're in the uh, in the newsletter archive where I keep the articles you, you can see the title of the article anyway so it's, it's in my uh, with my own hand or something like that is in the title so you could, you could get that and read the whole thing it's actually pretty lengthy and, and kind of interesting as far as you know, scribal habits and the use of secretaries you know you sort of an amanuensis in the ancient
2: world. Robert has our next question. I've heard that the terms Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs, Colossians 3.16, are the headings, titles for the Psalms in the Septuagint. Is this true? And if so, is there any reason to believe that Paul is is directing the Colossian believers to sing anything other than the 150 biblical Psalms in the passage? Well, I
0: I can handle the second part of the question with the first. No, this isn't really plausible. So the second part of the question just sort of falls by the wayside. Um, There's no – let's just put it this way. The the argument doesn't make sense for several reasons. This has me wondering if Robert is a a worship leader under assault somewhere. But uh, the argument doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a couple of reasons. One – if you search for the term Psalmoi, that's the plural, uh, nominative plural in the Septuagint, you'll find that it occurs in certain passages that aren't the Psalms and that are not really referring to the content of the Psalms. An example would be First Samuel sixteen eighteen. So this is this is the same chapter where David is is the shepherd boy and you know, Samuel you know has come to town and is going to anoint him and. David's out in the field when Samuel's looking at his brothers. So, David, you know, he's not king. He hasn't really done anything except ten sheep. So, there he is. Okay, and in First Samuel sixteen eighteen, you get this reference. One of the young men answered, "Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skilled in playing. A man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. The Lord is with him." So, David, would have was out there. You know, because again, he's a young man. This is before he has any status. It's before the David and Goliath you know, thing in chapter 17. So somebody knows that there's this shepherd kid out there that can play a mean harp. Right? <laughs> he knows music. He's skillful in playing. You know, the, the, the skillful in playing idea is, is the same term. So he's singing things. It, it doesn't say that he is writing them. It's just sort of a, a neutral reference using this term because he's singing songs, he might be composing them. We don't know. It's just there's nothing that requires it. Nothing elsewhere that states that David was out there saying, "Well, you know, I'm going to be writing songs here. And I'm going to collect them because I'll, I'll bet masses of Israelites will want to read these and sing them themselves." I mean, there's there's no indication of that he's trying to put his time to good use. Okay, he's he's entertaining himself or maybe some somebody else. So. You have you have sort of neutral references to the, you know that, that use the term second the last term spiritual songs is you know odes which gets translated in English as odes and it kind of undermines the idea because the term or the under undermines the idea of the question. That we're only referring to the 150, you know, psalms here in in Paul's reference to psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, because the odes, there are plenty of odes that were composed prior to Paul's time that are not in the 150 psalms. Some of them are in the pseudographical literature. Some of them, you know, wind up in the Septuagint again, which Paul has access to. So the term is used, you know, widely again outside of the biblical material. It's also used in the Septuagint. Of unnamed music prior to the creation of the Psalter, Judges five twelve, awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song, break out in an ode. It's the word odai. Uh, you have it used in in places in Scripture in the Septuagint again that are not the Psalms, Exodus 15, 1, the song of Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, so on and so forth. Again, it's not in the Psalms, Deuteronomy 32, 44. Moses came and recited all the words of this song, Deuteronomy 32, in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. Uh, again, it's not the Psalms. So you, you can't really say that when Paul penned, you know, hey, sing to yourselves in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that he was isolating his thoughts to the 150 Psalms that we have in the Psalter. I would also, you know, add... That the logic of the question is, it is, kind of flawed because, and what I mean by that is this: just because the Psalms are a focus, okay, because you have Paul's reference to the Psalms, Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Just because the Psalms are a focus of that statement, you know honestly, you know that they're going to they're going to form the bulk of what a Jewish believer would have known, and even Gentiles again because they're reading the Septuagint. That doesn't mean that other things are excluded. In other words, Paul doesn't stick a prohibition in there. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and absolutely nothing else, because it's ungodly or whatever. You know, he Paul doesn't actually express an exclusion of other things. You know, the logic is kind of akin to saying that since Second Timothy two fifteen, let me read that in ESP. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. King James has, like, study to show thyself approved, okay? This logic about the, the, the music here is akin to saying that, well, in light of what Second 2 Timothy 2.15 says, you know, the part of being approved by God is rightly handling the word of truth, which is Scripture, then we shouldn't be allowed to read anything else. It's just silly, that's not the point of what's being said. The point is to elevate something or direct you know, people to, to something else, something that they can sing. It's, it's not to exclude everything else. So I, it, the argument, the
2: approach, the argument just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. All right, Mark has our last question. I was hoping that Mike could spend three or four minutes giving a rundown of how the Emanuences use may have factored into some of the work by other New Testament writers. This comes to mind with the thought of his comments on the authorship of Hebrews as being someone who was at a very high level of Greek grammar usage.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mark also emailed me this, and I thought this was worth tacking on because hey, it's Colossians. So we might as well. This is going to be more than three or four minutes because I had I had come across um, I can't remember what year the book is, but it's a it's actually a book on first century letter writing. Uh, and the use of emendancies. Um, let me just look at the 2004. E. Randolph Richards. The title is "Paul and First Century Letter Writing: Colon Secretaries, Composition, and Collection." It's a it's an intervarsity press title from 2004. So I'm going to read parts of this. Um, it, it's probably a little overkill on what Mark is asking, but I think he will find it interesting, and you know, maybe somebody else out there in the audience will too. So this. Let me read first, before I get to to Richard's, I I was more familiar with Comfort's book, Encountering the Manuscripts, which is uh, an introduction to New Testament textual criticism. So let me read a little section from that, and then I'll go to Richard's book, because Richard's, I think, is more focused, but what, what Comfort says is still worthwhile here. Comfort writes, According to the custom of the day, the amanuensis, or secretary of official documents, was often the same person who carried the document to its destination and read it aloud to its intended audience. Since this person had been present at the time of writing, he could explain to the hearers anything that needed explaining. Since most people were not literate, on average only 10% of the population in Hellenistic times could read, they depended on oral reading for communication. Thus, for example, some of the epistles written by Paul could have been delivered by his amanuensis, who would then read the letter to the church and explain anything that needed explaining. In this light, it is possible that Tychicus was Paul's amanuensis for Ephesians and Colossians. He wrote down the epistles for Paul as Paul dictated and then delivered them to the Ephesians and Colossians. Most likely, the letter to the Ephesians is the encyclical epistle that traveled with Tychicus to Ephesus. And again, if, let me just stop there. If you if you assume that he is the amanuensis, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we just don't know for sure. So back to the quotation. Let's see. It's most likely, again, that Ephesians is the, the missing letter to Laodicea. This epistle is probably one of the same as the letter Paul mentions in Colossians 4.16, where he tells the Colossians, see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea. This language indicates that a letter, presumably written by Paul, would be coming to the Colossians from Laodicea. Since it is fairly certain that Ephesians was written and at the same time as Colossians, Tychicus carrying both epistles, and again was very likely Paul's amanuensis for both, it can be assumed that Paul would expect that the encyclical epistle known as Ephesians, would eventually circulate from Colossae to Laodicea. So that's what Comfort says. Now I want to read you, um, Richards has a much more, I mean, he has a whole book on, again, secretaries, composition, collection, you know, how procedurally how this was done, drawn from contemporary Greek and Roman sources, you know, how, how letter writing especially. So what, what, what I'm going to read you here, what Richards' book focuses on, is Paul. So this is about the writing of letters, not necessarily the Gospels, but, but letters, which is you know, a good part of the New Testament. So Richards begins this way. He says, Paul's writings show clear evidence of careful composition. They were not dashed off one evening in the flurry of mission activity. And then he quotes Betts, which is a major commentator on Colossians. Betts says, the very employment of an emanuensis, a secretary, rules out a haphazard writing of the letter and suggest the existence of Paul's draft and the copy by an amanuensis or a sequence of draft composition and copy. Uh, that's, that's the end of Betz's quote. In other words, if you're going to use an amanuensis, you would use that guy. Okay, there, there's, there's going to be some process of dictation and then talking about you know, how to say this and how to say that. Oh, well that, hey, that sounds better than what I have. Let's cross that line off and replace it. You're, there's going to be a process to producing this letter. That, by definition, the end product is going to be a careful thing. It's going to be well put together, well crafted. It's going to hit all all the things that it needs to hit, so on and so forth. So Betts is saying, if you're going to use one of these you know secretaries, you know th- this is to be expected. It's not just a haphazard man, I've got to fire this thing off, and here you go. Uh, Paul's going to put some thought into this Again, that makes a lot of sense. Now elsewhere, Richard says, The use of a secretary is complicated further by the flexibility available to the sender. The author could grant to the secretary complete, much, little, or no control over the content, style, and even the form of the letter. The examination of ancient letters below, and then he's going to go into a bunch of these, reveals that the role of the secretary may be described as a spectrum. At one extreme, the secretary was a transcriber who had no input in the letter taking strict dictation from the author. At the other extreme, the secretary composed the letter for the author. Most letters fell somewhere in in the middle, somewhere in between. On this spectrum, we can mark the two clear extremes. The middle area is less clearly defined. In the case of a transcriber, the author dictated the letter that was then recorded verbatim by the secretary. If a final polished copy was prepared later, the contents remained unchanged. In this role, the secretary was merely a transcriber. On the other extreme, the secretary might be the true composer of the letter. In this role, the author instructed his secretary to send a letter to someone for some general purpose without specifying the exact contents. For example, an author could tell the secretary to write a letter to an associate in a particular town to tell him that he had been providentially delayed in coming, and that when he was able, he would visit. It was possible to compose a personal letter from such general guidelines because of the highly stereotyped nature of most Greco-Roman letters, including even personal letters. The gray area in between these two extremes needs further elaboration. In this middle area, the secretary contributed in some way to the content of the letter. Perhaps the secretary, who usually had more training in letter writing than the author, edited the author's contents to conform better to epistolary standards. For example, the writer recited his letter while the secretary made extensive notes or perhaps even gave a rough draft to the secretary. In this role, the secretary was more like an editor, because he was responsible for minor decisions about syntax and vocabulary and style. He remained, however, within the strict guidelines of the writer's oral or written draft. The secretary could also be permitted more latitude, working from notes that were far less extensive. In this broader role, the form, syntax, vocabulary, and style, as well as specific pieces of content, were contributed by the secretary, who usually was more experienced in matters of epistolary expression, while the general content, perhaps the argumentation, remained the author's. Thus, the secretary's role ranged from transcriber to contributor to composer, again, or this editorial idea. So then he proceeds to sort of elaborate on all that in his book, and then he, I mean, he even talks about things like dictation speed because the examples he pulls out, he, he has an example from Cicero and Seneca, Plutarch, uh, Pliny the Younger. Again, there's even evidence of shorthand in letters where scribes, the, the, if you see shorthand in a letter, it's probably the guy's just dictating. He's rattling it off and the scribe's using some shorthand. Then he'll go back and then put, put all that in, into words that everybody knows because not everybody knows shorthand. And you even have that process going on. So, Richard's book talks about a lot of these features that you find in contemporary examples. But at the end of the day, we don't actually know, you know, what Paul procedurally did. Did he did he use one of these methods or all of them? You know, did did he did he shun some and you know favor others? You know, we, we just don't know. What we know is that he used an amanuensis, and and agreeing with Betts here, that argues that. This wasn't just something that he's like, okay, I got five minutes now, I got to, I got to shoot this letter off to the Ephesians. <laughs> no, there was a lot more thought put into it. You know, procedurally, this is something that's going to not just get, you know, spieled out and then sent. You know, where's the UPS envelope? I got to get this thing out of my hair as soon as possible. You know, I hope it's Amazon Prime. You know, we, we, there's nothing like that. They're going to take some time. You know, Paul is going to make sure that he he addresses what needs to be addressed on any given occasion. And I, I think we can we can conclude from you know things like the end of Paul's letters when he, he says hi to people, when he makes personal comments, Paul's in the room. This isn't a case where Paul just gives some vague instructions and then at the end the scribe just sort of makes people up. No, Paul is in the room. He has a personal attachment to a number of these people and it's not just at the end of the letters, you know, when when Paul does these personal things in in the course of his letters, and, and while scribes, while an amanuensis might be skilled professionally in how you construct a letter, what the proper form is, okay, Paul is the one who's expert in the scriptures. Okay, it, it's Paul that needs to produce that that kind of content, but he's working with an amanuensis in some way. So I, I think what we learned through this is again going back to Betz's pithy comment about you know if you're going to use one of these guys, then you make the best use of them. It's not just a robot. This is another individual. Hey, is this clear? Is there something you don't understand? Or, or that person might suggest something like, "Well, you know, I know, I know, you know, lots of people over in Colossae, and if you said it this way, they'll get it." You, know, if, you know. I mean, there, there's going to be some give and take here. So it, it, it's kind of fascinating. But at the end of the day, we don't actually precisely know, and it, it might heighten the significance of Paul at the end of a letter like Colossians saying hey, I'm putting my own hand to this. You know, I, I'm not. You know, if you go back and read that other article that we talked about in Colossians 4, if Paul can write, and again, there, there's, there's some – it's not just speculation. There are some good reasons to think – a case can be made that Paul wrote the letter to Philemon himself. Um, if that's the case, Paul's saying, look, I'm not just somebody who can't write and has to dictate everything and, and hope I get a good – You know, I hope this guy's worth my money. I can write, okay, and and you know I'm gonna I'm gonna put you know the, the the you know this final sort of indication in my letter. I'm gonna sign this with my own hand, maybe even in big letters again. For why ever he would say that, who knows? Uh, again, it's, it's all speculative at, at, at a number of these points, but I think at the very least we can know that Paul approached his letters with care, and that. Again, because of the nature of their content, they're not something that just anybody could produce in terms of content. Yes, maybe the form of the letter, because letters do follow form. You can read a study of New Testament epistles, and you're going to run into that every time. You know, what, what were the form, you know, the, the stock elements of how we do a letter? We do this too. Dear so-and-so. I, mean, I remember in grade school being taught how to write a letter. Mm-hmm. There's you know, the opening salutation. Then what you do in the first paragraph is a bit formulaic. You you talk about the weather, whatever. How you doing? There's a greeting. Okay, an extended. I mean, there are just parts of writing a letter. At the end, you know, you sign off in certain ways. Sincerely, you know, Mike. Okay, I was taught to do this. It's a very simplistic thing. You know, as a child in in grade school, you know, they they taught us how to do that. But anyone who's been to law school knows there are ways to write a legal brief so that person who reads it knows that you're competent. Because if you don't do it that way, they're going to think, you're incompetent. <laughs> How in the world did you get a law degree? Okay, there are just ways to do certain things in the literate world that have to be learned and observed, both you know, for the sake of communication and also for the sake of, of having the, the person on the other end feel confident that the person who wrote this knows what they're talking about. So yes, an amanuensis is important to get all those things right so that Paul can't be accused of being a hack. But on the other hand, it's Paul. I mean, and, and Paul has, has a command of, of the scriptures. You know, he has, he has a command of doctrine. He spent a lot of time, you know, with the, the original apostles and so on and so forth. That content isn't something that can just be produced by anybody. It has to be produced by someone who was there, at least in terms of the post-resurrection you know, context, and who knows the scriptures well. So, again,
2: I think it's instructive just to take this little rabbit trail. All right, Mike. Well, that's all the questions we have for this episode. So is there anything else you'd like to mention? This is it. If you have any more Colossians uh, things to get off your chest, now's the time to do it. No, I think I think, I think think that's all I have for, for the episode. So
0: good questions. All right. Yeah, we appreciate everybody sending in their questions. Please continue to do so at gmail.com.